0: Welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack And Sean Chapman We are here as always to talk about stuff This episode is not a good idea for my voice No, apparently not Because I spent at work today about three hours doing narration for something it was yeah. A vocal presentation on mic with my presenter voice So you can probably already hear I'm a little hoarse But we have a lot to talk about And I wanted yeah. to talk about it now And I just thought, why the hell not? Yeah, fuck it Fuck it! I got a Sprite over here. I don't know if that's good for my voice or not. Probably not. I don't think so. Probably I find not. Like
1: Sprites feels the Sprite feels sort of coarse to me as far as sodas go. So, but of all the sodas to drink when your throat is really hoarse, Sprite is maybe the worst one in my opinion. What are your so top three? The, the top, top three worst or top three best?
0: That's top three best.
1: Top three best. Uh, orange soda is absolutely the best. Oh, I should have thought of that. Throat orange yeah. soda. I think a nice, like, Dr. Pepper or, like, a Diet Cola okay. uh, works really well for me. And that's actually the only two I've that's got because <laughs> all, the, all the other ones are just horrible. Like, those ones aren't even good. I wouldn't say they're good, but they, it doesn't feel like you're just actively destroying
0: the skin on the inside of your throat when yes. you're drinking it. I mean, Loaf and Jug... Did not, which is our gas station around right here. They didn't have, like, alkaline water, which is right. what I would really need. So, you know, it's probably going the other direction.
1: You just, like, filled the cup full of ice cubes, and there you go. That's all you
0: need. That's probably smarter.
1: Yeah. be a lot harder to record a podcast while chugging ice cubes, though, so not, not, not quite an option.
0: All right. But we're going to talk about a lot of different stuff today. Our main, I don't think this episode has a main topic. It's going to be kind of a grab bag. But in so much as we have a main topic, we're going to talk about Jason Bourne, the fourth Bourne film. Yep technically fifth fourth with with Matt Damon Um, let's
1: just say the fourth born film
0: and I feel like that studio is going to just say it's the fourth born film yes and so came out this weekend moderate like moderately big hit although we that's another topic we need to talk about right is that nothing's doing well at the box office this year
1: yeah no it definitely doesn't seem like it
0: no and we got to talk about that so like nothing's flopping but nothing's doing great and it's an interesting thing. Yeah. So other unless you are a Pixar movie called Finding Dory.
1: Yeah, or if like anything it feels like everything that Disney makes
0: just like gets oh, money. No, Disney has done perfectly yeah. this year other than like their Alice sequel that wasn't ever going to make money anyway. Yeah, <laughs> which for some reason let's flush some money down the toilet. It
1: feels like there's maybe some sort of secret law we don't know about that like movie studios have to make one movie that they just like waste a bunch of money on every year.
0: No, totally. Yeah, yeah. So we'll talk about that a little later too. But um, so that'll be our spoiler discussion for the episode. We're gonna talk about a bunch of other stuff. I guess we can always do as we do at the top of the episode: spoiler-free take on Jason Bourne. Yeah.
1: Sean? Um, I think it's. The weakest of... And I, this is having not seen Bourne Legacy... So I can't comment on that... It's the weakest of the Born movies... Um, that I've seen... We, we talked about our opinions on the trilogy... In the last podcast that we did... I don't think it's a bad movie... It's sort of a disappointing movie... But at the same time I think... There's a really interesting movie... At the heart of it... That it is very clumsy at trying to get at... And they don't understand how to use the... Jason Bourne character very well... But there's a new character played by Alicia Vikander that I think is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And there's a really interesting thematic idea about sort of the, the new generational gap between now and when the last movie came out and the rising like young people in the CIA and like their role in society. And there's almost a like Foucault element to the movie that I was reading into that I thought was really interesting. The main problem is that the movie just doesn't really know how to make use of that almost at all. But there is something very interesting there. And I think it's a movie worth watching. I think, But I think you should go in with tempered expectations.
0: It's weird. I agree with pretty much everything you're saying. But I think I'm way more down on the movie. Yeah. And part of that is because I do see the, 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 the hints of what is good at it yeah. in there. Yeah. Alicia Vikander is phenomenal in yeah. this. And, and she's the reigning actress for, or winner for Best Supporting Actress. Cool. Um, and th- funnily enough For the Danish girl Even though everyone Will remember that she won For Ex Machina Which she was phenomenal in But she wasn't even Nominated for It's one of those scenarios Where Ex Machina Doesn't feel like an Oscar movie So they nominated her For an Oscar movie Even though everyone knew She was winning that For the other movie Right yeah The <laughs> weird politics of Oscars yes. and Oscar nominations she, I mean she deserved it Either way so She's a great actress yeah. um, And this was a this was great work from her To the point where I wish it was just a movie about her And I don't even know if I need Jason Bourne in it Yeah, and that's <laughs> why I'm like I'm hoping if they make
1: a sequel to this one That that's the route they kind of take Because I think there's a lot of potential To have Jason Bourne Be more of a background character In these movies now Like it feels like that's the natural role His character needs to occupy And it feels like they just didn't quite realize that In time with this film
0: No, because the things I liked I think you could spin off into their own movie If the next one... Maybe you don't even have to have born in the title, but it's just Paul Greengrass making a movie about that Alicia Vikander character. Matt Damon can pop up; he can be like Leonard Nimoy in Star Trek, sure, you know, yeah. And just be kind can, of there in the he background.
1: Can have, he can do the cool action scenes when you need the cool action scenes.
0: But yeah, no, I mean, I just but outside of that, I thought this movie was awfully written. I think the dialogue is terrible
1: there are some pretty clunker scenes in this movie like holy
0: shit i i hate some of the plot twists i think they fundamentally misunderstand the jason bourne character here which is amazing when you think of how fundamentally they understood him last time around and uh, i think matt damon is stranded and has nothing to do i think i think it's i thought for the first hour or so i was like well at least it's really technically impressive and i was not even thinking that by the end i think that Action in this movie is outside of like the Athens scene at the beginning, which is incredible. I think a lot of it is very flaccid and uninteresting. Sure. Um, I I think that it indulges in some Hollywood um, plot archetypes that I hate at this moment in time. Right. And we'll have to talk about those. So, very mixed bag, not at all horrible as a movie necessarily. As a Jason Bourne movie, it's very disappointing. And I think on that level, you know, this is something I tweeted. I don't think it's, it is better than the Bourne legacy. I don't think it's so significantly better that you can really separate the two, though. Okay. And that is a disappointing thing to me. Right. Because at the end of the day, I can at least watch The Bourne Legacy and go, I can tell you what the plot was. I can tell you from point A to B what the Jeremy Renner character was trying to accomplish and what he did. Right. I couldn't even begin to tell you what Jason Bourne's motivations were, what he accomplished, what the movie thought they were doing thematically or narratively. I watched that movie just going, huh.
1: I think there is Like I think there is Something it is doing Thematically and narratively I just think it's very Bad at getting it. Yes, like that's... it's very clumsy But I think there is Something there at its core I, I get it just that. like Can't get at it Because it feels like At some point like This is the I didn't want to, mean to do this But here we go The born legacy On this movie is like Holding it down Right yeah. and it can't quite figure out How to completely shed it And that's the biggest flaw The movie has Yeah
0: no, it's okay. If you've heard all the puns I've made on the title of this movie in the last week, accidentally, where I will say Jason right. Bourne, and then I'll say the word again, and now I'm thinking of the Evangelist Christian movie, <laughs> okay, where okay. Jason Bourne is Jason Bourne again. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that's where they take it next. The Christian audience is huge. Yeah, I mean, it's
1: it's a surefire way to get some money, or if you fuck it up, to get them just protesting your movie.
0: Free advertising. Yes. I mean, they're very passionate. Yes. Either way. Get Mel Gibson to direct it. The Passion of the Bourne. <laughs> sure. <laughs> all right, so... uh God, I was going to make a really bad joke there. Yeah, I might just as move well. No. He uncovers the Zionist conspiracy this time. Okay, sure. There yeah. we go. See? Yeah. Okay. Mel Gibson's racist. That's really the point. Yeah. All right, let's move on. We're going to talk about some news and stuff later, uh, and we'll get into Jason Bourne more. Um, but I want to start with just some random stuff. And I actually have a cool thing that I just did.
1: Okay. But
0: to make a long story short, I bought a new PS Vita. Okay, I wasn't expecting this. this what this a plot f- twist. This was a weirdly expensive week for me. Okay, yeah. So I wanted to play my Vita. As yeah, you do. As, as you do, yeah. Really, actually, the first thing I wanted it for was just I wanted to play I Am Setsuna on remote play to do some grinding. Okay, and that, that didn't work. Sense. And then I found out I could remote play on my Mac, and that was cool too. Oh, yeah, anyway, yeah, that, you can. That works really well. Um, but I couldn't find my Vita charger. And oh, I no. looked and I looked and I looked. It's just gone. It's just gone. I think someone... In my house, got rid of it or something. Or I thought mean, that that else.
1: happened to me once with an old cell phone charger. This is like before the day of days of smartphones, where my brother took it on accident, even though it didn't work with his phone. <laughs> He just grabbed it and then went to a party up in Boulder when, this was when I was still in high school. And I never saw that cell phone again. I looked yeah. all those years I was up in Boulder in school. I was really actually just trying to find my old cell phone charger. It never came back. Nice. Son of a bitch. Yeah,
0: so this isn't coming back. And it was not alone that I didn't have a charger, that I bought a new Vita. But one of the complications of this was I'm like, okay, I'm going to go buy a new charger. And usually that is the simplest thing on earth. Sure, yeah. You cannot get a Vita charger. Huh. It is so... Sony used to manufacture them. They don't anymore. So you can kind of get them third-hand, or like second-hand, but they're expensive. Right. Or you can go third-party, but all the Amazon reviews were like, it broke my Vita. Third-party like, chargers are dangerous things. So I yeah. didn't want to do that. And so I was just, for a while, I was looking on eBay. I could not find a fucking charger for this thing. And it's so weird because, it, obviously this is a general annoyance of proprietary chargers. Yeah. And I'm talking about the old fat Vita. Which, you know, the new one has a micro-USB, which I oh, love. I'll talk yeah. about it in a second. Um, but the old fat Vita proprietary charger. And that can be annoying, but at least when you buy, like, an iPhone, it's not hard to get a lightning cable. Yeah. There are plenty of lightning cables out there. You can get one for, like, three bucks on Amazon. It is not a hazard to owning an iPhone.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Or with the Nintendo 3DS. You can buy a million different, you know, USB cables for your 3DS. It's not hard. GameStop makes them wherever you want to get them. You can get third-party. They won't brick your fucking system. Right. It's easy to get. For some reason... Vita just doesn't have that.
1: I th- like it just kind of feels like it's maybe a bit too late for the, yeah. the Vita market. Like the Vita is an old console at this no, point. No, I
0: get it, but it's still it's just it's bizarre to me. Yeah. So I uh, but I'd always kind of wanted to get a new Vita because when I first got mine it was used and there's a uh-huh. it's had a bunch of problems. Like the screen just had some smudges I've never been able to get off. It was a 3G model oh, and okay. for whatever yeah. reason, so I just ripped the SIM card out immediately, but so it always yeah, says no SIM in the corner and the Wi-Fi is really fucking weak on it. Oh, okay. Like, it takes hours to download stuff. It's just, it's, a, it's very bad on that level. And then I've had some other issues with it. So I'm like, you know, fuck it. I like my Vita a lot. It's got all these Persona games. Yeah. And there's this, they got this new Vita Slam. I'm going to try it out. Okay. So they had it on Amazon. Fuck it. Um, got it in Did you get it in like A really cool color? No they only
1: have black because When they launched that thing It was in a bunch of cool colors Not
0: in America I think just oh. in Japan You yeah, can't Japan always gets All yeah. the fucking cool colors No, I, I did look at it For about 50 bucks more I could have gotten One of the cool colors Yeah but that's not worth it either. No yeah And it would have been A Japanese system Which I don't mind I, You can switch it to English Yeah <laughs> I know enough katakana To go through the menus and Yeah Yeah um, but no, I got it in, and I, the only thing that had been holding me back from upgrading, frankly, was there's this whole controversy with the original Vita. The the fat has an OLED screen that's like really nice, yeah. and the new Vita, the slim, has just an LCD screen.
1: Yeah,
0: and it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. I played it for about half an hour tonight. It's totally fine. People made I was scared because people made a big fucking deal of this online. Yeah, it looks the same. It's for one, it's not just some shitty LCD screen. It's an IPS. It's nice. It kind of looks like, maybe not the newest iPhone, but like the 4 or the 5 or something. You know, nice iPhone. It's totally fine. I can tell ways in which it is different, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's inferior. Like, the colors are different, and I've heard some people describe it as washed out. I don't think they're washed out. I think they're cooler, and they look like LCD colors, which frankly look more natural than I think OLED colors. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. But like you know The first thing I did Was I launched Persona 4 The Golden Watched the opening movie Went into an old save file It's like I have played I've spent 80 fucking hours Staring at this thing Right It looks like the Vita screen It looks like Persona 4 It's perfectly fine Yeah And then there's Everything else on the system Is better All the buttons They've improved Or the ones that were Already perfect Like the D-pad Just done enough to like enhance them a little bit um and then there's big improvements like the old like home screen button and the start and select on the fat vita are terrible they're like yeah they're so flush with the
1: system that it's really hard to press they're
0: normal circular buttons now they're great yeah like um there's the the, the volume up and the power all of that is better um it's easier to kind of get to the ports when you need to put in a, a card or something so that's nice and it is dramatically thinner and lighter and I didn't think, I, I never had a problem with the size or weight of the original Vita. Yeah. But this, like, you hold it's like, okay, they, I didn't know they could do this, but it's pretty cool. And it's a lot, there's a lot more kind of matte finish on the back, so that's nice. They've kind of decreased the space enough of the rear touchpad that I don't think it'll be a problem of, like, brushing up against it. Right, in yeah. times you don't want to. So that's nice. It's a huge improvement, and it charges with micro USB, so I can never run into the charging problem again. Yeah. That's until great. micro USB cables We just destroy all of them It's a cultural war Against micro USB I think I have enough Just lying around My fucking house that... yeah,
1: like Some of those types of cables You just accumulate And you don't even know How I have yeah. them like, I literally have a box In our storage room That about a month ago I just collected All these cables And organized them And we had probably Like seven micro USB cables Just yeah. lying around the house In random little corners
0: No and I mean it's it's I have them for everything Because the Xbox One uh, Controller charges off it The PS4 yeah. charges off it my Kindle charges off it. This charges off it. You know, my phone doesn't, but that's fine. Right. So, everyone, like, almost everything else. So, that's nice, and... and yeah so it's, it's nicer I have Again I haven't spent A ton of time with it I played like Five minutes of Persona 4 Just to run around And then I got scared Because I wanted to Play the whole thing Yeah it feels <laughs> like It's like
1: Five minutes is about The limit before You are just starting A new game of Persona 4 and There's, yeah. no, you're, there's no returning From that Especially because
0: On that save Like I started Right next to Marie And I could talk to Marie And right. I'm like Oh god Marie's my favorite I want to play this game Yeah then I, so instead, I just played some Persona 4 Dancing all night, did a couple songs. Fuck yeah. It's great. looks yeah, good. I load that up every now and then and play through a couple of songs. Also, Persona 4 Dancing all night confirmed the system sounds better, too. The onboard speakers, they're not like, you know, phenomenal or anything. Right, yeah. They do sound better than the original Vita. They're, they're much louder. They're a little clearer. That's nice. Yeah, I,
1: don't, I think I've maybe listened to, like, three minutes total of sound coming out of just the
0: speakers on my Vita. Like, I always use headphones. I'm so lazy. I often just, on my 3DS and Vita, I just... I mean when I really care about something like dancing all night, the headphones, obviously. Yeah. But just a lot of the time I guess. Yeah.
1: I feel like I'm either using headphones or I just have the system on mute. It's like yeah. it's one of the
0: extremes for no, me. It's I got the same it. with like my phone. Yeah. yeah. Um but no, it's a really nice upgrade. I mean this is this, this upgrade came out back in twenty fourteen, so I know it's not particularly yeah. relevant, yeah. but just cause I I feel like if people are like worried at all about that thing about the new Vita, like if you have an old Vita you need to replace or something, the new one is totally fine. Yeah, yeah.
1: People did it's, make a really big deal out of the OLED
0: screen being replaced, but it's, it's t- honestly. Yeah. For a screen of that Resolution and everything I don't think OLED Does all that much Yeah And this looks It's bright It's colorful It's The resolution is identical So all the text and stuff Looks the same Yeah The only thing where I noticed Any kind of like Downgrade at all Was I don't think I played a little of Persona 3 Portable I checked that too To look what a PSP game Looks like Right And just like slightly It doesn't look quite as good But that's I mean that's hard anyway That's a PSP thing They're up resing And all that stuff It still looks very good For what they're doing with it Yeah Um, I also checked Final Fantasy 3 Which is technically a PSP game and that looks just fine so it's it's a really cool and I've gotten all my folders back and everything the other thing I've yeah. talked before about like when I have to replace my Nintendo systems what a fucking hassle it is right. to just get my games back on it yeah. and my saves and it's like a project yeah it's like you here's, have to
1: go like contact the president of Nintendo of America yeah like have him authorize a transfer
0: here's how it works on the Vita yeah how does it work uh I popped out my memory card uh-huh I put it in the system I popped out Persona 4 Dancing all night, which is the only game I have on a cartridge. I put that in the system. I started it. I just had to sign in and authorize the console, and I was done. Wow. That was it. Huh.
1: Man, I can't believe that it feels like Sony is really innovating on, like, this sort of, like, (laughs) just having all of your stuff associated with, like, an account that isn't dedicated to any
0: piece of physical hardware, because that's an insane fucking thing to do. I have some other things to talk about. Okay. While we're on games. Yeah. I finished I Am Setsuna. Oh, cool. Mention later. Yeah. Um, I mentioned that earlier. Yeah. I mentioned last week I was, I was very high on this game. I thought it was really beautiful. The music is just so incredible. A very good story, very moving story. The ending of I Am Setsuna is one of the greatest video game endings I've ever seen. Cool. Like, there is an image, like, kind of the climactic image of the game. You'll know it when you see it. That is up there for me with the climactic image of Persona 3. Okay. In terms of one that just sticks in my head. If I were ever to see something like that image again, it will take me to that moment. Right. So, I like, you know how the Persona 3, the movie number 3, ends with just that little hint at the image? Yeah, yeah. You could do that with I Am Setsuna, and it would be the same kind of emotional impact. That game has a phenomenal ending to the degree where it really does rise the rest of the game with it. Mm-hmm. Up until that point, I would say it's a very good JRPG. It becomes something really special because of that ending and because of how hard they nail it
1: yeah cool i'll definitely check that one out like as i was thinking about when i like i was thinking about getting a new game of this past week and i was looking at i am sets and then I was, i'm not quite in the jrpg mood mm-hmm. especially with final fantasy 15 right around the corner but i'll definitely check it out at some
0: point yeah and you know it's a jrpg light it's 20 hours it's not a huge yeah. commitment yeah. and it's you know it's the chrono trigger battle system so it's not like something newfangled and crazy and I like that about it It handles the battle stuff very well you know and I don't think the game's perfect near the end I do think some of the stuff leading up to the ending is too long Mm -hmm. and a little too grindy at parts again this is JRPG 101 problems but whatever Um, but you know I would say that's a little flaw and I think the story just gets a little choppy there for those reasons. But again, once you get to the actual ending and it snaps together, it's so perfect you just forget about that stuff. It's a very special game. It's a great throwback while also feeling like something new and very different and its own completely its own thing. And I just, you know, the name Tokyo RPG Factory sounds it, really It's the greatest developer name ever. It's yeah. so perfect. Yes. It sounds like really dystopian. I'm really excited to see what these guys do next because this is such a special thing that if they can, you know, if their goal is to kind of take RPG mechanics from the past but, you know, put their own spin on it and do something new with it, yeah. that is so exciting. And this is such a first great game from a new studio. Mm-hmm. I, I'm so excited to see what they do next. And I love that Square Enix is using their powers for good and just yeah. giving a little team the money to do something like this and the resources.
1: Yeah, it's like while wow, the Japanese side of Square Enix is just like, one side of it is just furiously pumping away at Final Fantasy fifteen and it has been for like eight years. And then they just have all these little studios just like making stuff like Bravely Default, Bravely the Second, the Sets, and then like all these yeah. smaller RPGs that are sort of leaking out that everyone like most people seem very impressed by. It's nice that that those smaller JRPGs that, that harken back to the old days can
0: still have a market now and like be the impressive today. Yep. And again the best thing about I Am Setsuna is the music 100% having finished the game This is the soundtrack of the year for me oh, And cool. some of that just comes down to How much I love that it's a solo piano thing And I know your mileage will vary How much you kind of have a, a tolerance and an interest In that kind of you know piano driven score But I just, I found every minute of it moving the, the music at the end of the game Is just fucking phenomenal And it's, that alone I mean this is one of my favorite games of the year This is another one where I can put in the pile of I could make this number one this year. Okay. And there's like five of those this year. Yeah. What the hell? It's, I
1: feel like we've been saying this since, you know, the fabled dawn of Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth, but this is a really good year for video games. It
0: fucking is. A good year for Japanese video games at the moment too. Just you look at how many great Japanese video games there have been. So that's awesome. And I have one more, two more games to talk about. Okay. (laughs) Little things. One is, uh, I'm kind of going in out of order here, but Obzu just launched on the PS4 this week. Yeah. Launched Tuesday. I started playing it Monday night because of the preloading stuff. And I really only had the chance to play through two or three levels. Amazing game. Beautiful, beautiful design and graphics. I've never seen anything like it. This is one of the most beautiful games you can get on the PS4. It is literally jaw-dropping. It starts and you think, wow, I haven't seen a game make use of like the Wind Waker aesthetic this heavily in a while. Right. And then you get like into the sea and you're like, Oh, this is what the Wii U can't do.
1: <laughs> right, Because <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I'm
0: thinking of Wind Waker HD when I look at, like, the clouds. Yeah. And then you get into it and I'm like, Jesus. Like, the particles and the lighting and the amount of stuff going on on screen. It's incredible. And you can very much tell it's the lead art designer from games like Journey and Flower and things like that. Yeah. Um, just yeah. stunning. It's Austin Wintry doing the musical score Uh, equally stunning this is another just soundtrack of the year contender right Uh, just uh, it is not a game so far with real plot to me or very deep mechanics in terms of like challenging gameplay and for me it does not need that at all it is this pure aesthetic experience the reason for the game is to be inside the game and i really like stuff like that you know this is in the same category of things to me like you know proteus almost or something like that this is much more um It has a lot more direction than a Proteus. Right. But I get a similar feeling where it's like the point of this is just to be in the game. And there are technically goals to get to, but there's also just a lot of parts where they're very clearly encouraging you, just swim around and hang out. And I'm totally fine with that. And I've seen some mixed reviews and I, I can see... I think it's totally A matter of preference Whether you have yeah. Tolerance it Seems for like this. it'd be
1: A really hard game To review Like yes. it's just like It's so outside the scope Of what most games Are trying to be
0: Yeah I really actually Polygon had a good review Of it because their First line was that Yeah It's yeah. tough to review Yeah games. Justin McElroy Wrote that yeah. one he's,
1: he's a good reviewer
0: Yeah so you know I really liked it I would definitely Recommend it if that's Your cup of tea A lot of people Are making comparisons To Journey So far I would say A better comparison Is something like Flower or like Entwined Which is not the same People but very clearly Inspired Yeah it's a ps4 exclusive where it really is sort of this series of levels that are sort of rifts on the same visual themes and everything and and kind of you know it's formulaic at a certain point but i don't think in a bad way um and it's you know at this it's it's not thematically heavy-handed though in the way we were talking before the show about like flower is yeah flower's got for anyone who's played flower like when you by the time you get to the
1: end level of flower it's like i fucking get it guys like civilization is bad and
0: nature is good like holy shit i didn't think that a game with no dialogue would be this fucking heavy handed and it's also not as loose as entwined which is really just a visual thing with a light almost you know fantasia-esque story going on right um and we'll see maybe the deeper i get into it there's more to it than that i don't know about but i'm really excited to play more of it are you
1: really excited to plumb the depths of abzu there's I, I there's so, your review like tagline for
0: you i suppose so it's a game you have to be in the right headspace for yeah. you know i didn't play any yesterday part of that was i was doing other things part of that was i wanted to i was in the headspace for a different game which is stardew valley oh okay finally came out for mac i'm playing that i don't know if i like this game yet but I've played twelve hours in the last week. Oh, okay. I so, <laughs> I thought that was going I thought the continuation of that sentence is gonna be but I've only played like two hours and no. then I was gonna say, well it seems to me like those kinds of games are sort of slow starts. You need to get into the systems. It's a slow start. I I again I don't know if I really like it. I can't stop playing it. It's okay. very addictive. It's basically I would describe it as Harvest Moon meets Minecraft or Terraria. That or sounds like terrifying. That. Um <laughs> very addictive so you know you farm you plant your crops all of that you can go out into the town and talk with people eventually you can marry them so that's all very harvest moon-esque but then there is mining and crafting and you go is in- there like a weird dungeon or something yes there's a big mine that you go into and you can kind of go further and further down and that's where you get your copper and your ores and stuff okay. like that which i think i was supposed to discover on like day three and i discovered on like day 70 or something oh. so i was just busy with other shit in the game and finally I was like, I need to make a fucking furnace. How do I, I need copper bars. Where do I get the copper bars? Oh, there's that mine and I had a quest for it like 10 hours yeah, ago. Yeah, it's like
1: the old man standing on my side, house at the beginning
0: of the game told me, you should go down this mine. I, I, just, I just never had the time. Well, it's a weird thing like where the mine is like, so you have your farm. And yeah. I, I think the town itself is always the same. I don't think it's like a procedurally generated thing. Yeah, that, probably not. No. Yeah, so yeah. your farm is sort of on the far left side of the map. And it's nice, you've got a good amount of space. But then the mine is up on like the top right side of the map and there's okay. no quick travel thing. And so every day you want to mine, you gotta get all the way over there. And I don't love that about it. That's a weird thing. It would be like if in Minecraft you couldn't just like start mining anywhere and you had to like walk halfway across <laughs> you, you, the world and go to the designated mining spots. Yeah. yeah. And so I and I don't mind it being a designated spot. I just think like, why isn't it near my farm? Yeah. So I don't know but there's clearly like there are so many systems I haven't even engaged with it's very it very much reminds me of like the early days of Minecraft where the in-game tutorializing is as minimal as possible. Right. So you're going to be looking up wikis a lot to, to kind of figure certain systems out. Yeah. But it's fun. There's a basic gameplay loop of just, you know, planting your crops and caring for them and getting money for it and kind of figuring out those systems. It's very relaxing. I've played it while I'm watching TV or doing other things, and that's kind of, you know, you can use 30% of your brain and play it. Right. Um, I don't know if there's enough... A lot of it, though, is just... I think I'm playing it a lot because it's a compelling grind. I don't know if it's a compelling game. Yeah. Which is... And it's a weird thing because I do think when I've played Minecraft before, obviously I think that's a very compelling game. I love that game. And it's not just a grind to me. And I know some people might think differently or some... As someone who
1: spent some time watching you play Minecraft, it sure looked like a fucking grind, but...
0: Well, for whatever reason, and I think it's just because of the, the sort of 3D freedom of it, if yeah. you feel like you have a goal and everything, Minecraft can be very liberating. Also, that I can't discount the co-op component of Minecraft, yeah, yeah, um, which this does not have. Uh, and I've also played a little Harvest Moon as a kid, and that didn't feel the same way of grindy to me at all either. Um, so I don't know, but it's you know it's a game that looks very nice. It kind of looks like the the nicest Super NES game that never came out for the Super NES. Right, looks and sounds like a, a Super NES game. And it's got some good, you know, character to it. Um, It, you know, runs very well on my Mac, and I'm sure it does on anything else. So it's it's a good. Yeah, it does not seem
1: like a like processor intensive kind of program. No, I just you always
0: worry with a port of that kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Because hey, Telltale's been doing this forever, and they can't get their fucking Batman game to work. Yeah,
1: maybe there's just something about Batman and PC ports. He just, you know, PCs killed his parents in an alleyway when he was a kid. (laughs) He's just never been good with them.
0: It was Bill Gates.
1: Was the mugger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. Bill Gates just shows up. asks Have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? And fucking Gats's parents. I'd watch that. Just anyway. never recovered.
0: Man, I'm a little surprised that Batman v Superman didn't do that. Where like Jesse Eisenberg somehow killed his parents. Like yeah. as annoying Lex. Luthor. He time
1: traveled through through the flash, the portal that flash opened in the weird like non sequitur middle section of Batman v Superman. Killed Batman's parents. That's probably the plot line of Justice League, I just realized. They could
0: still do that. They, yeah, we did that not is, see the killer. That
1: is totally the plot line of the Justice League movie. Okay. Sorry to spoil it for you,
0: Zach. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway. So, I mean, it's a weird thing where I just... I, I could not review this game. If you want to play it... I mean, at 15 bucks, totally worth it. There's a ton you can do with it. It is very charming, low-key. It's a nice thing to just kind of relax with. Yeah. Um, not wowing me on the level some of these other games are, but you know what? In a year where we've got sort of like masterpiece after masterpiece... I'm okay with just kind of a chill-out indie game. Sure, yeah. I'm really okay with that. Yeah. It's nice to not have the pressure of, like, where do I put this on my top yeah, ten. Yeah,
1: and you're not playing this in the back of your head. It's like, oh, fuck,
0: what am I going to do at the end of the year? Yeah. All right, well, that's some of my game stuff. I have a few other things to talk about, but why don't you go with your game stuff?
1: Okay, yeah. So, so like I said earlier, uh, when you were talking about I Am Setsuna, I have been, this past week, I, there was a night where I sat down and I was like, I don't have any video games to play right now. I've basically gone through a lot of my backlog. i played, like, Valiant Hearts. i played Gravity Rush. I've played this, that, and the other thing. I've played a lot of games, and it's like, I just feel like I want to play something new. I was looking at IM sets, and I'm like, I just, I don't feel like I can play a JRPG right now. Final Fantasy is coming out soon. Like, Persona 5 is coming out after that. Like, I just, I can't, I can't play another JRPG right now. I already played fucking the shit out of Digimon Story Cypress at the beginning of the year, and it's hard to put like like three jrpgs played through in one year is too much for me i feel like that that would start
0: taking off like minutes of my life
1: and sometimes it's not even the time
0: element it's just how much you pour yourself into it Yeah,
1: it's the style of game is very sort of i think mentally taxing but it's like i just can't it's not like you know i could play like sort of like mediocre first person shooter campaign one after the other and like like melt my brain and i wouldn't really notice it's like you can't play a JRPG without really paying attention to it at some point because of the story element so I kind of passed on I am Setsuna I like was thinking about well absolutely was almost out I was like man I'll just get that but I've got to play through that in like two hours and that's not really going to solve the problem of I want a video game that I can come back to when I have some free time just just dig into and then I noticed oh right that hitman game came out like all the people all the like video game people I follow on Twitter love this hitman game I really liked the, the beta when I played it earlier this year Fuck it! I'll just buy this fucking Hitman game. So I bought the Hitman game. That Hitman game is
0: really fucking good. I want to play it. I don't know what I'm going to. How many yeah. episodes
1: are out? Um, so basically, they're halfway through. There are three main maps, and not including the tutorial maps, and then one sort of like bonus episode that they just released, like around the time when I got it, which is they sort of took. Two of their maps and kind of sectioned off smaller pieces and like rework them in interesting ways. Like one of them takes one of this uh, Sapienza map and sort of cuts out a section of it and turns that section into a movie set where you are uh, assigned to assassinate the lead actor of the movie who's in an Iron Man suit and they're filming this big action scene. So like the ways you can kill him in that sequence are so amazing. Like you can replace the fire like prop thing with like a like big. Fat, like fire tank or like propellant tank that just like lights him on fire and kills him you can mess with the hydraulics for this like hydraulic launcher and like launch him into this big like prop robot thing with big teeth and he gets chomped up by the teeth it's that that bonus map is really good so that's the stuff they've released and then they they've showed the locations for the next three maps are japan usa and i think thailand i don't remember what the third one is that's cool yeah but so like with the i so yeah, so I'm kind of jumping in at the middle of their release cycle. And for those who don't really know what this Hitman game is, it's it's obviously it's based on the Hitman franchise, which is a series of sort of like stealth, like pseudo stealth puzzle games, almost. Where you're basically assigned with you have to kill these targets. You are dropped into a big open sort of like sandbox map, and there's a bunch of different ways that you can kill the targets. Either like sort of like more scripted unique kills that you can do, like the aforementioned replace the fire prop thing, to light the guy on fire or you can just like sneak into a secluded area and like bring it like find a sniper rifle somewhere and shoot them and then do a sort of more like like hitman like hit on them but it's all a game that is about sort of like exploration and creativity and trying to navigate these big complex beautiful maps and find unique interesting ways to sort of like engage with the targets and, and then take them out in different ways and so I've never really jumped into a Hitman game that much. I played a bit of Blood Money and didn't really get into it when that launched in the early 360s life. And so this is the first one I've really gotten into. And like with I, I talked about a lot when I played the beta, one of the things I like about this is, one, the, the business model I think is awesome where there's, it's sort of a pseudo-episodic game where every month or so they have released a different map that gives you time to sort of like dig into the map. Like really like see what's there and it encourages you to replay the game because you can't beat the game yet, right? So like I've played through all the maps once and now I've gone back to the beginning and then playing through and getting all the challenges and exploring them more deeply. And if they had just dropped the whole game at once and I like just played through each mission one after another, one after another, and then got to the end of the game and saw the end of the story, I don't know if I would do that. So like making it so you can't just like beat the game and psychologically tell yourself that you're finished allow like it like allows you the freedom in a weird way to like really go back and explore the game and not feel like you're almost like wasting time which is what i sometimes feel like when i'm like replaying games too much i feel oh i should be like watching a movie i haven't seen or reading a book i haven't read or playing a game i haven't played yet kind of thing so yeah with this hitman game that business model combined with them putting in some systems that kind of guide you a little bit is really helpful especially on like your first playthrough in a map i really like ...being able to go in and find some of the unique opportunities they call them... ...which are like the unique kill opportunities that are like the the fire one... ...or like on one of my favorite ones is on the Marrakesh map... ...you have to like infiltrate this embassy to kill one of your targets... ...and he's, uh has like this appointment with a masseuse to give you a massage... ...or to give him a massage... ...so if you find the masseuse before the appointment... ...knock him out and take his clothes and disguise yourself as him... ...you can give the guy a massage and while he is talking... Every single sentence while you're giving him the massage that he says to you is, like, specifically designed to be really cool if you kill him. Like, it's, like, always, like, some ironic thing he says. like, man, I'm really looking forward to my vacation next week. And then you snap his head, that kind of thing. Like, so those sort of opportunities, when you encounter, like, the sort of the, some, like, clue in the environment of, like, oh, there's an appointment that this guy has with this masseuse... It will then pop up on your map a waypoint that directs you to the next stage in that sort of unique assassination. And I found that is something that the old Hitman games did not have. That this one allows you to sort of, especially the first time you go through these maps, is so intimidating because they're so dense and there's so much stuff and you have no idea like how to approach the scenario that your first time through just like following those and like getting this cool kill feels very satisfying and then opens it up for that now that I'm going through the Paris map which is the first one. Now I don't need to use that stuff. I know the map so well. I know all these secret ways to like, get up to the third floor of this building without anyone knowing and stuff like that. That I just think this is a great game, and I'm having a great time with it. I think it's if people who have not jumped into the Hitman franchise before, I think this is an awesome place to
0: jump in on. I'd love to play this game if I had time. <laughs> yeah,
1: but I mean, the other nice thing about that business model is that it is the kind of game where it feels like. You can just keep on coming back to it, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to jump in, is because also they have been doing all these like sort of like timed unique missions with called elusive targets and all this stuff that just seemed like it's a sort of thing. It has a fun community around it that is engaging with these releases as they come out and this sort of unique content they release time that is like time exclusive. So if you don't do this hit, you just the elusive target hit when it's open, you kind of miss it, and then that seeing that sort of like community building. It, it, is one of the things that made me really want to jump in on it now instead of waiting until the game's done, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. It's really cool. Awesome. Yeah.
0: I'm really glad that game's good. And yeah. I'm a little sad. Honestly, the reason I hadn't jumped in yet is because well, I, I also, I think, follow some of the same people you do on Twitter, and right. I've seen them you know, being you know, raving about it here and there, the, the games press itself has barely talked about this game. Yeah, it I've, feels like it's something where the games press almost doesn't know
1: how to talk about it because of how like, the unique the business model is.
0: It is, and I think it's the one area where the business model has fucked them a little bit is just yeah. on that marketing promotion in terms of reviews and hype is a little lesson, And this just happens with this kind of thing. Yeah. But also there's never been an episodic game quite like this, which is a triple-A episodic game, you know? Yeah, and, like, the style of... Where it just
1: feels like when I see, like, IGN release a review of, like, the Marrakesh map, it feels like this just doesn't feel like... Like, what is this? Like, well, who is this review serving? It just feels like, like that like the review cycle
0: model doesn't really apply to what this game is doing. It's not right. like a Telltale game. But it's tough, because I just kind of yeah. forget about it, and then I haven't jumped in, and then No Man's Sky comes out next week, and yeah, I've yeah. already got that pre-ordered, and yeah. blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I would love to try it out at some point. And, <clears throat> and I'm assuming, like, even if you can't play it, like, while it's still all releasing, you'd still recommend play it at some point.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I yeah.
0: mean, because, like, while there is some sort of that fun, sort of, like, kind
1: stuff with playing it as its, as its stuff's coming out, like, the game is just fantastic, in particular... The second map they released this is which is a map called Sapienza is maybe the best like just big dense like sandbox level I've ever played in the video game like it is so huge and there's so much stuff and so many weird intertwining paths that like the first time I played through that level like you basically like both of your target both of my targets were still in the mansion and you can get them to move out but like so I like was spent all this time in this big mansion with a huge like underground cavern area and all this shit and then I went back to do some other stuff in that map and then I realized oh I only was on like half of the map. There's this whole like road that leads down here with all these alleys and all these shops and like a church and a cemetery over here and this whole like beachhead area that the first time I was through this map I thought that beach was just in the background like no, you could go down this road and actually go there, and there are unique kills that like you can get your targets to go to that area of the map and kill them over there. Like that shit is crazy. Like I've never seen a map like that in the game before. Wow, it's really good. So yeah, that like, cool. like that. The 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 other two maps are not quite at that level as of sapiens. I hope the one of the next three ones at least. reaches quite that level But that Sapienza one Is fucking incredible
0: Might have spoiled you Early on on that one Yeah maybe Like it just feels
1: like Because the Marrakesh map Which is the one After that one Is the weakest of the three So that was a bit Disappointing but
0: But it's pretty ambitious What they're trying to do With those different Open You know it seems like A lot of games Would just pick one of those And that would be the game
1: Yeah yeah Like almost Like you could see Because like really That Sapienza map I don't know quite I don't know if you can Play like, just buy that and only play that. I'm not sure how, because I just bought the whole package that, yeah. so that I get all the content as it releases. But if you can just play the Sapienza map, like, fuck it. Like, that is the one to play. If you can, like, buy that for 10 or 15 bucks, like, I would do that if you don't necessarily want to commit to the whole game yet. Awesome. Uh, and then you saw a TV show that everyone else is talking about, so you might yeah. as well talk about it. Yeah, yeah, so... About two weeks ago I guess uh, That Stranger Things show uh, Launched on Netflix with their whole We're just going to drop the whole thing at once model And it's an eight episode I guess kind of mini series feel to it That is just like Like I was going to say it's, it's heavily inspired by like dot 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 But it's so heavily inspired by so many things That it's almost like like Stupid to it all out But it's like It's inspired by Like John Carpenter Steven Spielberg Like uh, Stephen King It's just a whole litany Of sort of like Sci-fi Horror Like like sort of like Kid movie stuff From the Se- 80s The Goonies Is another big influence
0: yeah. It's like seven, Late 70s All of the 80s Yeah Like yeah. Family based horror stuff
1: Yeah it's like E.T. is a good Sort of uh, Reference point For like The kid side Of the story But it's a very big Sort of like Ensemble show It almost has a pseudo-Twin Peaks feel to it as well because of the the main plot of the movie or of the series is that there's this group of kids and they are all playing D&D because they're really cool kids in the 80s and then one of them is going home and he disappears and then they're in this sort of like small sleepy town in the United States that also happens to have this secret like kind of shadowy government base on there that are doing weird secrety. Uh, Experiments that Is probably related To how this kid Just disappeared And so the local sheriff Is sort of investigating The disappearance The mom of the kid That disappeared Is kind of going crazy His friends are trying To find him And this whole sort of Town starts unraveling while While all these Different groups Are trying to Figure out what's going on Around this missing kid And rescue him And figure out Why he went missing What is all this weird shit That's going on With this like Secret government organization In the town And there's like A monster on the Lucian All this stuff And it is just a I mean people probably know because everyone was talking about the show when it came out but it really is an absolutely fantastic uh, show I think I recommend everyone watch it it's it, like it has only one very slightly like sort of like problematic I guess subplot which is so minor to only have one of those in an American TV show for me. That actually, like, that is that sort of, like, weird B subplot that feels like, oh, like, you could have cut this out. But it does. I think it sticks around for maybe one episode too long, but they do end up wrapping it back around to the main story, so it ends up working for me. How long is it? It's eight episodes long. Each episode is between, like, 45 minutes and an hour. Kind of like, you know, how Daredevil did the same thing where it doesn't have a prescribed episode length. So it's, like, it's a good sort of, like, me length. I ended up watching it, like, every, like, night with my parents. We'd watch two episodes and then... wait for the the next day and that was a fun way to watch it. i just think it's like there's it is really fun it's it's really well written really well directed the child actors who sort of make up there's sort of four child actors that make up i would say the main group of characters and all of them are just unbelievably good there's in particular i don't remember what her name is but there's one girl who's like this 12 year old girl who plays a character named l who is just unbelievable like her performance is incredible so I, I just think if you are someone Who likes that sort of genre Of that kind of like 80s sci-fi horror stuff This is
0: just a must watch thing Like it's, it's incredible I love the net There are some problems I have with the Netflix model But my favorite thing about it is this kind of thing Where they will just drop a show out of nowhere This yeah. did not have a lot of pre-release hype yeah. And it comes out and then every you just it, it gets discovered and people love it Yeah. And it's actually I watched a Netflix show this week And this is a an older one um, that just had a new season But BoJack Horseman right. The third season just came out I just finished that But that was in its first season like that Where it really didn't have a lot of pre-release hype It came yeah. out Some critics dismissed it Because honestly And I think a lot of those critics will admit it They just didn't get it In the first three episodes Which is right. I think what was sent And But then it just kind of Got this steamroller effect Of people watching it And realized this is something so special and I like that about Netflix because, yeah. you know, even some of their shows that, and I've not seen a lot of this show, but like Orange is the New Black, right. that came out in the shadow of House of Cards, and I don't think there's a person on earth who would tell you it's not a better show than House of Cards. Right. And the year that first year of Netflix originals, it was the underdog. So I just that's the special thing about Netflix for me, is yeah. when you get these kind of just special things that no one else is making.
1: Yeah, and it is something that it feels like. It's one of the, the really cool things about this era of television we're in is that, like, the show like Stranger Things feels like it could not have been made under like the traditional TV model Even with like something like HBO would not be able to make this kind of show It just feels so unique and weird And the sort of the main creative forces behind it are these guys named the Duffer Brothers That that as far as I was looking them up and they've only made They've made like a couple of small horror movies and that's about it And like they just like put out this incredible eight episode miniseries Like you said that didn't really get a lot of hype or marketing beforehand but since enough people have Netflix subscription... It's, it can come out... Like the trailer can come out... People can watch the trailer... And then they can just watch the show... And it, it like hooks you from... It hooks you from like minute one... Because the, the show starts with... What may be the best d and scene... I've ever seen in like fictional drama... Like they so perfectly capture that... Sense of like... Young kids playing d and And it's like so note perfect... In the writing and the performances... That... I feel like usually when you watch a D and D scene in something, it feels like when you watch someone playing video games on like a movie or TV show. It's like, ah, oh, this is—it's so corny and exaggerated, and it feels like it was written by some guy who knew a guy who saw someone once play D and D, and this was like. Mm-hmm. That like the 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 whole thing feels incredibly authentic. It, through the like awesome D and D scene from the beginning to the awesome D and D scene in the last episode, it's like it just feels authentic. It feels like their inspirations are authentic, and they take so many inspirations and influences from so many things that at some point it just feels like it's just completely original. Because it just takes everything and mixes it up And like twists twists twist on every
0: single individual element And just comes out with something brand new it's Kind of like the Quentin Tarantino effect to me. Yeah if in you, some if ways If you pastiche hard enough and you have your own voice It's not just empty homage Yeah it becomes it's own sort of like unique entity at some point That's definitely awesome. what Stranger Things feels like to me Well I'll have to check this out definitely Yeah, yeah it's, it's a great a, show It's a great and sometimes scary thing about Netflix Is there's like no barrier to entry on any of this Yeah It's not like, you know, cable dramas where you have to own ten different packages under your fucking satellite system to watch it. So that's awesome. Um, But BoJack Horseman, just to also mention a Netflix show, the third season of that series, uh, it is one of the best seasons of TV I've ever seen. Cool. And I, I think people who have not seen BoJack Horseman think everyone who watches it and praises it is just silly. It's like, isn't that the talking horse show? Right. It is the talking horse show. It's about a bunch of talking animals and people who coexist and they think about this sometimes in weird ways. Where like season two is about how they get meat in this world, and it's that they find like basically retarded chickens and okay. abuse them, and then they try to get one of the chickens to escape. It's this is the kind of show it is. It's very silly and out there sometimes. Right. It is also TV's deepest dive into depression and narcissism and the sort of culture that of you know like loneliness in places like Hollywood and of celebrity. ...that is on anywhere in the TV landscape right now. All those feelings, some of which are very universal... ...some of which are specific to sort of the celebrity Hollywood landscape... ...but all of which we can relate to. It is both of those things at once and it can be both of those things... ...because both of those things exist at once. And it can be as silly as it is because it can be as dark as it is and vice versa. And I think it was that in the first season. It was even better in the second season. And the third season is like just meteoric rise again. Every single episode of this season, and there's 12 every year... ...is special, it is different, it is unique. It's the only show I watch on Netflix, at least... ...that fully solves that streaming problem... ...where it has an arc throughout... ...and you can binge it and be rewarded... ...but right. each episode is its own thing. It's its own little work of art. Right. It's its own you know chapter in a novel that is its own thing. And I feel like a lot of Netflix shows... ...and just shows in general these days... ...with the, the, the tendency towards serialization... ...don't master that and it's so important to me. BoJack Horseman gets it. It's, to me, of all the Netflix originals I've seen... ...it's easily the best... And just keeps getting better. It's got a, a cast of these incredible live-action comedians like Will Arnett and Paul F. Tompkins, and uh, Kristen Schaal shows up sometimes. And I'm forgetting the name of the woman who plays Princess Caroline the Cat. Um, and Allison Brie is on there. Okay, and Just yeah. a lot of a lot of different people, um, and and who are all great live-action. And I don't. I think to a name, I think they're doing their best work on this show. It's incredible. There's the the. Vocal work being done in this is just so far above and beyond a lot of just the live action comedy work Which is great these days, we're in a really good comedy renaissance on TV um, But the show can make me laugh just uproariously hard There's this episode with this restaurant critic who at the end gives the restaurant 453 stars out of possible a billion okay. And it made me laugh so hard just about how they were commenting on the culture of stupid online ratings Yeah and stuff like that's that. That's
1: not a very good rating, by the way. That's that's maybe the worst rating anything has ever been given. That is fucking dismal. Yes. That is effectively a
0: rating of zero. <laughs> yes. So anyway, it's just. Uh, but that all, that episode is also basically a two-hander between BoJack and Princess Caroline, where it's all about sort of their respective histories and pasts and wants and desires, and it will just tear your fucking heart out. Uh, there's some the place this, the show goes to some dark places in its last two episodes that just had my. Jaw dropped To a point where I think the only misstep If I can even call this that Is that the finale Has some Uproariously funny stuff in it And I couldn't laugh Because I was so Horrified and brought down by where they had gone in the previous episode But it was completely organic the whole way through And that uproariously funny part in the finale Is a payoff to a season long joke I've never seen anything like it Where they keep seeding in this thing Where basically a character gets a house full of spaghetti strainers in the premiere For dubious reasons And they are waiting for the spaghetti strainer thing to pay off the entire time And when it does it's absolutely amazing So this season is just phenomenal This show is phenomenal If you haven't seen it it's very easy to binge because, you know, each episode is about half an hour. Okay. 25 minutes, I guess. And it just... I watched, I think, like six in one night of this season. I finished it in basically two sittings the whole se- season. And I didn't mean to. I just flew through it. Right. Um, but it's, it's so fucking good. And cool. again, I I love that Netflix is a network, I guess we can call it, that can have releasing in the same month... The Weird Talking Horse Show and the Weird 80s Throwback Show. Yeah. And they can both kind of be equally acclaimed in different circles. Yeah, and, and neither of them are shows that like any other network would ever make. No, not. Yeah. Like, I, I think you know the clearest precedent for some of BoJack Horseman is some Fox animation. But even then, like, a Fox wouldn't go anywhere near this thing, I think. Right. So it's, it's just incredible to me. But yeah, so good stuff. Cool, yeah. I have two more things to talk about. Okay. One really good... One really bad. I'm going to go with the good one first. One really ugly. (laughs) Um, This weekend, um, a new Harry Potter book sort of came out. Oh, right. I mean, the Harry Potter
1: script came out, right? Isn't that what it is? Yes.
0: Um, So there's a play that opened in London's West End this weekend uh, after being in previews for about a month. Uh, called Harry Potter and the Cursed Child And it is uh, not written by J.K. Rowling Technically she's very heavily involved She helped write the story She was there for the whole thing But the actual like, text of the play is written by a Actually very renowned British playwright Named Jack Thorne I was looking at At the end of the book They have like the biographies for everyone involved in the play Heavy hitters like, I, I don't know them because I don't go see British plays Obviously right, yeah, yeah. But like, if you do like, These are names you would know like, These people do stuff there and it's you know and the play itself is sold out I think to December 2017 already of course stuff like that and you know so that's big and it had the biggest pre-order numbers since Deathly Hallows but I was very interested in this because obviously I love Harry Potter a lot and I've talked about that before and I put some stuff up on on the site for everyone for that because I realized I my big Harry Potter article I wrote back in 2010 was not on my website because I think I wrote it's one of the last things I wrote for your hub and it never got ported over. So I finally ported that over And it was very surreal To be sitting down To read a new Harry Potter story Even if it's in a script You know it's like a play Not a book Um, Nine years later And I was weird There was a weird Uh, convergence Nine glorious years Of no Harry Potter (laughs) but There was a weird convergence For me because The Born Ultimatum Came out in summer 2007 Yeah Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows—the book was summer two thousand seven—and I actually finished reading the book of the Born Identity the night Deathly Hallows came out. So all of this is kind of tied in my memory together. Right. So the same day I went to see Jason Bourne, I read Cursed Child. So the book came out at—I um, I had it on Kindle, so I, it just delivered to me like ten p.m. on Saturday night. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, you know, technically came out on Sunday, and I just sat and I read the whole thing in one sitting. It's—it's it's like three hundred and fifty pages, I think. But you. But of like this. Play dialogue. Yeah, it's a yeah, play. You yeah. you can read it really fast. I, it's four acts, and I read each act in about I don't know forty five minutes or so. Um, you know, I think the whole play it's actually a two part play, whatever the hell that means. But like, I think when it's performed, it's like over two nights, and it's about oh, five okay. hours total. Um, but again, I read it in about two and a half, so you can you can get through It pretty fast. It's really good. It's it's so much better than I think I had not necessarily expectation, but I think that it had any right to be right. one of doing kind of. And it's I can't separate it from Jason Bourne, but like. Both of those are stories, to me, that end perfectly and don't necessarily need a sequel or anything. Right. And Jason Bourne, to me, kind of proved some of my worst fears about if you're going to follow up on it and you don't know what you're doing, it can go in the wrong direction. Yeah. And this was very clearly... J.K. Rowling has been thinking about this and how she would continue it. And it's really interesting and thoughtful, where one of the things I think we're going to talk about with Jason Bourne, with the Bourne character in particular, is he's kind of stuck in a rut where he's just doing what he's always done. Yeah, And it's amazing to me how much the Cursed Child play is so detached from, like, any kind of Potter loyalism or anything like that. It is, from page one to the end, it does not care about just messing with continuity here and there, about messing with maybe your perceptions of certain characters, about playing with the timeline in certain ways. It's very bold and does its own thing and goes in directions you would not expect. And I really love that about it. Um, I know you won't mind <laughs> For my listeners I'm going right. to spoil it A little bit here Yeah no I so, already read The plot synopsis okay.
1: When this thing came out Because like I want to like Get this I, I need to like Plunge myself Of more Harry okay. Potter Because when you say Harry Potter and The cursed child That just makes me Think about my childhood I'm the cursed child Growing up with All this fucking Harry Potter shit All over the place And I never give a shit About it and everyone else Around me always did Okay Fuck those people Fuck you uh, can I just like What I like No Okay no, Yes Except for Harry
0: Potter all right. Anyway, can I talk about it a little bit? Sure. Go okay. Ahead. It's so, a dumb plot. just there's going to be spoilers from this point out. I don't think I think I can totally understand. It sounds dumb on paper. It's very well written and sure, it's very yeah, sure. well done. And I think you know the basic the plot has a lot of time. I just,
1: sorry, I just have to say this. It sounds dumb on paper is like the tagline for Harry Potter for me. Okay, that's I fine. Just, I think that's a because it's a book series. I think I thought that was a good that was a good
0: burn. Just fuck you. Okay. Can I again? Okay. Anyway, yeah. But it's that you know, it's a it's a time travel plot. If you haven't seen, basically the the plot, and again something I commend them for. It really Harry is in it. Some of the adult you know, Ron and Hermione are in it. The main characters are Harry's son, Albus, and Draco Malfoy's son, Scorpius. And the Scorpius character is the play's master stroke hmm. because effect. I think Scorpius probably has the most lines. I think he's really. I, I don't know if I would say. I think he and Albus are pretty much co protagonists, but. Scorpius I think gets the weight of the story and it rectifies something that is one of my only real complaints with the plot arc of the story is that J.K. Rowling I think had a very interesting character in Draco Malfoy and didn't do anything with him by the end right. and she does in this book with that character and especially with his son because the whole plot, the, the, the crux of the plot is Albus is sorted into Slytherin very uh, unexpectedly and he and Scorpius become best friends. Scorpius is not like his dad, Albus is not like his dad, and the relationship between them informs everything, and that to me is so interesting because that is that is that is why you do an eighth story, because you right. can do something with characters you just did not get to do last time, and shine a new light on this world, and kind of see where are we 25 years after the biggest thing that ever happened in this universe and what would the children of those characters be like? And I think it's very thoughtful in that way. Thematically, it deals with sort of the fallout of the, the series itself and the war with Voldemort and all that very interestingly um, and has a lot of good stuff just with those, again, two main kid characters that I, I really, really like. And yes, it's a time travel plot, so they wind up trying to... It kind of all hinges on stuff from the fourth book, so which makes sense, because that's when the yeah. Voldemort character returns. What was
1: funny about that was when I was reading the plot synopsis, it was like... Because I, I think I was reading it was like the Polygon had an article that basically kinda of laid a lot of this stuff out. And when they got to this like thing of like what is it, Cedric Diggory is the character who dies in Goblet of Fire, I did not remember that at fuck it all. And I okay. watched i read like half that book and watched that whole movie. I didn't remember that character ever existed.
0: No, and I actually think this play is very aware that Cedric is a milk toast character no one cared about. Right. But that's the point, is that he's kind of the I can totally understand in this play's perception why that's the death that Harry is guiltily fixated on. Because it's not someone who is directly tied to him. It's not someone he loved deeply. But it's someone he feels responsible for the death of, even though it's really not his fault. So that's interesting. And I think the way they tie that around is very smart. And because, again, when that happens in the timeline of the series, you get to play with a lot of fun scenes. And it's just cool to me how you go back to some of those scenes and... Jack Thorne and J.K. Rowling, they don't give a fuck if that scene plays out the way it did in the book. They're going to make it work for the play and for this story. And, I can't, and I've seen some people hate this book for that reason. Right. Because it's not Potter Orthodoxy 101. And I, I couldn't applaud them more. I want you... If you're going to do more, do something different. And just... Right. You have to tell a good story. Whatever that entails. And they tell a good story here. So I'm not going to spoil where the plot goes and everything. But I just think... I, was, I think the basic setup alone is kind of spoilery enough if you didn't want to be spoiled on any of it. They right. haven't given any of these details away. But I like the way they play with the time travel. The stakes feel interesting and high. Not in the way like a Harry Potter book or movie is. But for, again, a play, it's interesting. And really, if you read it... The play is as much an essay and a commentary on the Harry Potter story as it is a continuation of it. It is a sort of meditation in parts on what that story was and some of the themes there. And I think in that way I really like that. Um, just when you see some scenes with the adult Harry character and trying to get over some of the, the guilt and pain he would obviously feel if he went through the shit he went through. Right. And then became an adult after that. That's interesting things they've done with some of the characters and again in terms of just you know throwing away things that are accepted continuity I also like that just there's a lot of stuff people have taken as like it's official canon because J.K. Rowling in an interview said I think this is what Hermione does. Right. And the play doesn't care. It's like we found a better thing to do with Hermione or yeah. Ron or something. And again I like that because it's this is actually thought through in the context of a story. What is Ron up to
1: these days? What What is he doing?
0: I think they treat it pretty well. He basically because the uh, Fred and George Fred dies in book 7 right. and they ran a joke shop together and Ron basically takes Fred's place and okay. he's still doing that years later and Hermione becomes the minister for magic and so like Ron is raising the kids And being the jokey dad Okay yeah That's so perfect That is
1: the right way To do that That is that is a good and, Path for those characters After that story And because
0: of the Time travel stuff You get some alternate realities And the stuff they do Where in every other reality Ron and Hermione Aren't together Is fucking hilarious yeah. Because it totally It's very aware Of how those characters Were written in the books um, And you know it, I think Another thing I've seen People disappointed in Is I think You know This was clearly advertised As like the new Harry Potter book It's right. not It's, it's a, a play, play. And people going in to read a book are going to be thrown off. I've read enough plays that that doesn't throw me off. Yeah. It, you know, you have to adjust to it. You're, a lot of it is for the stage and will be lost on you unless you kind of use your imagination to yeah. feel like, what would they do? And you have to think about, well, this scene is this way because it's for a stage play. And I think it's a very well-written stage play. I would love to see this on the stage. There's clearly some very cool and bold stuff they do with the idea of just how you use a proscenium to tell a Harry Potter story. Yeah. Um, so all of that's very neat, but it is a play, and it also does not—it is not in J.K. Rowling's voice. It is written in, in someone else's voice, interpreting her voice, and that's okay with me too, because that also is is something new and fun. I don't need her to ever write Harry Potter again. Um, I, if she does, I'll read it, obviously, but I Finally, think Finally, we
1: is... agree on something involving Harry Potter. Okay, well, anyway... Sorry, I just
0: have to take the digs when I see them. And again, to be fair to J.K. Rowling, she has not rested on those laurels in the right, last yeah. nine years. She's written lots of other stuff, and she's getting back to Harry Potter this year in certain ways, but it's not like she hasn't done anything since then, Yeah. which is cool, I think. But, you know, so I would say, like, if anything, I think some of the highest praise I could give for this is it's kind of like just the best Harry Potter fanfic you'll ever read. Right. In that it, it's... it's it's someone interpreting the story through their voice and I like that about it and I got a lot out of it. It's, you know, I would totally recommend just read it in one sitting, get through it. Um, it's a ton of fun. I would... I, it's weird. I, I keep thinking I would love to see the movie of this with the movie actors and then I remember Alan Rickman is dead. Oh, and God. There yeah. is a Snape scene in this I, you have to have Alan Rickman for it. I don't uh-huh. you would if you did the movie you you can't do it because you can't do the Alan Rickman scene right. or you have to cut that scene from the play, right. and it's a really good scene, so there's just things like that that would make me well, very also sad. like from what I saw of the plot, it
1: seems like there would be like i think like if they made it it sounds like having not read the script, if they made a movie adaptation of the play, you'd get the same problem of like people expecting the Harry Potter novel and getting the play script and not like really knowing what to make of it mm-hmm. is that it's like. People have certain expectations for what a Harry Potter movie is like and what the stakes are and what the pace is and everything like that. And plays are not movies. As much as like scripts and screenplays seem like they are the same thing, right. they're not.
0: No, although I will say I think this would be significantly easier to adapt to the screen than certain Harry Potter books mm-hmm. because it's not a year of school, it's a it's more condensed thing. There's actually a beautiful scene early on where I expected when they do the scene where Albus gets sorted into Slytherin, they would make a big deal of that and they don't. Instead they do like... And I don't know exactly how it's done on stage, but some of the stage directions are very interesting to me, where it's like, you know, spinning sets and things to illustrate this. But they do three years in one scene okay. of those characters growing up and becoming friends, and basically, I think it's in like their fourth year at Hogwarts is when the plot actually kicks in. But they get to there in one scene, and that is one that I think I I like the idea of trying to do that in a play. That would be beautiful on film. I think you could sure, totally yeah. do something cool with that. So. You know, I I would love to see the play. I'm obviously never going to see it with this cast in England. Right. But, but I don't know. I mean,
1: there's going to be, like, a filmed version of the play that you can get if you want.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. So, but yeah, it's cool. And, you know, um, still, and I I saw someone, like, trying to explain how the sales numbers were disappointing. It sold two and a half million copies in one day. It's a script for a fucking play. What are you expecting to sell? I don't think Shakespeare has sold that much. Exactly. (laughs) Like,
1: it's people don't buy scripts to plays like that's not a like casual thing that most people go out and buy that you like find in like the bestseller corner at barnes and noble like the fact that you sell sell any of them is amazing the fact that like i was like because i had no idea this was thing was coming out until like on twitter some of the people i follow were like
0: i'm at the midnight launch for harry potter and the cursed child and i was like am i having a nightmare right now what is going on like by the way What's this fuck? This is my favorite thing about how the world has changed in the last nine years. Yeah. My midnight launch party was having my Kindle and it would auto-load it when it was ready and I could just sit in my comfy chair while everyone else was waiting for the book to come out and I was like done with it before anyone got the book in stores.
1: Yeah. That's, that's a midnight make... launch party. Yeah. I love but my those Kindle. those
0: lines. I also, I wonder if that, I would bet that two and a half million number doesn't include Kindle sales. And, Probably, people, yeah, and like I think,
1: digital, like, it never does include digital sales. And people anything. are
0: forgetting that last time a Harry Potter book came out, there was no digital reading. Yeah, that's that's kind of scary. to Think about, but yeah. So, yeah. but no, very good. There's some very touching scenes. If you like the Harry Potter universe, I think you'll really enjoy this. And I think even if you're someone who's a little Harry Potter agnostic and isn't super into it, you might find this interesting because it is. It's it just it's not the J.K. Rowling novels, right? And I like that about it. Um, even though I love the J.K. Rowling novels, so that was cool. Yeah.
1: I would actually be kind of interested in seeing the play of this. Yeah, like
0: like, like the, the I, like
1: some of the just like seeing the synopsis of the plot. Some of the things made me kind of roll my eyes a bit. But as someone who has like, even if I don't really like Harry Potter, I've seen all the movies. I read like the first three and a half books. Like I have interest in it as a cultural artifact and the idea of this play is very interesting. Although I don't think I would like commit to like reading the script. It seems like a bit dull for like someone who's not mm-hmm. invested in it, you know. No, I
0: totally get it. But and again I I commend them for that, that you you'd wait nine years and your big revival for it is not... I mean, I know they're doing the Fantastic Beast movie, but I kind of consider that a that's, that's thing. That's a spin-off thing. Yeah. Your big revival is not, she's just going to sell out and write an eighth book or do an eighth movie or, you know, Daniel Radcliffe has to come back and shave his beard or something. Yeah, he and, has to, like, become sane again. Yes. <laughs> Go do, like, a big movie. Um, no, it's you do this West End play with, like, really... Revered play people in England at a, a cast of what seems like really great theater, you know, stage people. You know, they made Hermione black. That's awesome. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Hermione yeah. in the play, and they're like, she's a great actress. Who, who gives a fuck about her skin color? Right, yeah. I was like, yeah, who gives a fuck? You guys are good at this. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I like that. Here's something I didn't like. Okay. I saw Batman the Killing Joke. Oh, fuck, right. That came out between that- here and the last podcast. I did not
1: watch it. Uh, but I know basically everything about that movie because I have read a lot. Oh that. God!
0: Yeah. What did they do? Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the good things. Okay. When it's just doing scenes from the book, right? It's pretty okay, and sometimes it's pretty effective. Mark Hamill is great. He's always great. Yeah. He's never not great. Kevin Conroy is great. Never not great. I like that. Um, their voice for Gordon. This is horrible. It's Ray Wise. I love Ray Wise. I don't know what he was trying in this, but he's like Ray Wise has kind of a cool, deep voice. Yeah, he was trying to, like make Gordon sound like a twenty year old kid with acne. It was weird. Huh. Like it's a it's a really bad Gordon. But other than that, like the and Tara Strong, as much as they fuck over Batgirl in this movie, literally, um, she's good. I mean, she's yeah, Tara I mean, Strong. She's she's the voice of Batgirl from the animated series. As yes, well, so. she 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 really cannot do wrong in yeah, this she part.
1: She knows how to play Batgirl.
0: Yeah. And you know, I think the last couple scenes when it's just Batman and Joker in a room, very good. If you ignore the dirt cheap animation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's that. The first 30 minutes oh. are a Batgirl prologue. And it's not even. And it's, that's the weird thing. Like, what it really should be is a forty-five minute killing joke movie on the DVD, and then a bonus feature that is the Batgirl episode. Yeah. But it's all one movie, and so I'm going to get into the specific problems with this in a second. The larger scale problem, just from like a if you if, detach ethics from this, which we're going to have to get into. Um, but if you just from storytelling logic, having the first thirty minutes of a seventy minute movie not include the Joker in the killing joke movie yeah. is fucking bizarre. Yeah. And it's, so, it's such a bad choice. It just it kills any momentum the movie has because you watch 30 minutes of the worst animated series ever, episode ever, which is pretty much what it is. And then you get into The Killing Joke, which is supposed to be the definitive Joker story, but by weight of storytelling, it's become a really bad Batgirl story. And what is that bad Batgirl story climax with? Her getting shot and sexually assaulted. Right, yeah. They made it so much worse. And yeah. so this is where you have to bring the actual content of the story in because those 30 minutes... It's so much worse than any description could, could tell you Like if you're just hearing it secondhand, Because really what it is Is it's Batgirl really wants to fuck Batman yeah. So she becomes Batgirl uh-huh. All she can do is complain to her gay best friend She works with in a library at uh-huh. About how Batman won't notice her She's chasing a guy named Paris Franz Who is the worst Batman villain ever I'm just going to say that Worst Batman villain ever Who is just constantly ogling her And basically you know sexually harassing her yeah. So there's that and then she keeps failing because she is a weak woman, which is exactly what they presented as. I am right. not sugarcoating that. that. The theme of those 30 minutes is that women can't be superheroes because their emotions and sexuality get in the way. Yeah. That is, and that is, not even, that is the story. I don't care what Brian Azzarello and the people who made this say. That is 100% the theme of this. So that keeps getting in the way. Finally, she and Batman fuck, which is really weird. On a rooftop. And I should say, they portray Batman as an old Batman in this. Like, he is... I mean,
1: it's Kevin Conroy voicing Batman. It doesn't sound like, oh, this is like Batman early on when he's in his 20s.
0: No, and up until that point... When Batman and Batgirl are in a scene, it's completely the paternal thing. Yeah. So when they finally talk, It is the relationship yes. that Batman
1: and Batgirl have. Yes. And have basically always had.
0: So it feels every bit as incestuous as it sounds when they finally do it. Yeah. And the only person whose skin you see in the scene is hers. Of course. So there's that. And then um, she fails to find Paris Franz again. And then she realizes, I'm a woman. I can't fight crime. I'm hanging this up. And then we get into the killing joke where after that she gets shot... And after that, they have a tag in the credits where she becomes Oracle, right where now, really right. how they hammer home her story is, oh, thank God she got shot and paralyzed, because now she can do what she was meant to do. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. That is, the, that is yeah. the tone you get out of it. And in terms of, I mean, there's so many problems. The absolute over-sexualization of Barbara Gordon in this where you have the sex scene but also in all her I think the scene leading up to her getting shot by the Joker is her jogging where the camera's just like on her ass for ten seconds and then her like sweaty getting into the, her home and all that so that, that she can then get shot and sexually assaulted by the Joker in something that is every bit as graphic as it was in the novel they did not fix it one bit and because of the, the surrounding narrative context they made it so vastly worse yeah this is one of the worst things to ever happen to the Batman ethos.
1: Yeah. The Batman
0: ethos, I should say. Right.
1: Yeah, no, it's... It's a fucking thing, man. Like, and, and I think it's important to note that Bruce Tim, who is the producer on this movie, seems like, like, from all the interviews and everything, it seems like he was pretty hands-on with this one and who the the, sort of, was the creative voice behind Batman, the animated series, Superman, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, those, those cartoons... He has always had a weird thing about shipping Batman and Batgirl together. There is in technically in continuity with Batman Beyond... Like Batman and Batgirl had a relationship in between Batman the Animated Series and Batman Beyond... That takes place like 50 years in the future or however long it is. Like that is... It is referenced in an episode. It is way... Apparently, because I have not read the comic... It is way more explicit in a like comic book version of like a continuation of Batman Beyond... Where they go into... Because it all has to do with like the big falling out that Dick Grayson and and Bruce had was that Dick Grayson, Robin slash Nightwing, traditionally in the comic books and in the cartoon has a relationship with Barbara Gordon. But then in the cartoon apparently at some point in between Batman and Batman Beyond, Batman and Barbara had a relationship and then Dick Grayson found out about it and they had a big fight and it's like, why Bruce Tim? Like, why? what is your weird fixation on this specific
0: pairing she, that makes no human sense at all? She's his daughter. I there's Yeah. No, she's his symbolic daughter. The only way I can make this clearer is, I'll put it this way, would you be okay if Batman fucked Robin? I yeah. know we all make the jokes I mean, about ambiguously yes, gay duo. Yes, I would be.
1: Yeah, that's why I said yeah there. I okay. Yes. But
0: it would be weird if he fucked Robin because Robin is his, as we hear in the 66 series, youthful ward. It's his yeah. adopted son- she is not literally his adopted daughter; it's just as bad. She is his symbolic daughter.
1: Yeah, she is his symbolic daughter. She is the literal daughter of his best friend, who is also like his basically his fucking co-worker, You know, yes. so that's like another weird situation. He is like, like the best age difference you can do is like ten years, and that's like nope. if you're like skewing Batman way young. But he even then, like most Batman he's 15 to 20 years older than her like she is Robin's girlfriend like like every single social relationship involving Batman and Batgirl basically preclude them having a romantic relationship every single one is like is
0: designed in such a way that them being together is super fucking weird and and if you're not actually going to do anything with it, like if Bruce Timm wanted to do an alt universe thing where like let's explore the actual ramifications of this incestuous thing, yeah, that might be interesting in the way you know Batman comics always sometimes just go into weird alternate dimensions, yeah, like a what
1: if kind of thing, yeah,
0: whatever, do do that, go jack yeah. off on that, yeah. But like for this and just to not deal with it and to just treat it as something that I mean, this was their attempt to try to make this best story better for Barbara Gordon, yeah,
1: yeah,
0: and it's. And the thing is, like within the context of the movie, I'm. Since some people say, "I eh, just ignore the first thirty minutes and it's fine," I can't do that. It's a movie. You're telling me to ignore half the movie. Yeah, that's not how movies work. I'm sorry. And also it's just you, you can't ignore that Because once you get into the meat of it I can see so many ways they could have done this right Right. Here's the, here's the way you do it You start with the same first scene Which is Batman goes to interrogate the Joker The Joker's not there, Joker's on the loose And then if you want to extend it, do it there while they're looking for the Joker And right. you can have Barbara come in and she helps him out And then we get a sense of what their relationship is like Barbara gets to be a character right. Then when you do the assault scene I would get rid of the sexual assault aspect of it And I think you can, you're not going to ever make it perfect, but you can kind of um, help it a little bit. Sure. And then I would move on and kind of, you know, keep these characters in the picture. And if you can't get it to 75 minutes, that's okay. It's a direct-to-video movie anyway. That's how you do it. You do not do it by doing the, uh, it's just, it's a bad episode of the animated series up front and then the movie. Yeah. And it's... Awful.
1: But it's also like for me because I've been I have been thinking a lot about this I also like just like broke out my Killing Joke graphic novel to reread it just like because it's, it's such an interesting thing because I feel like it's just like this movie coming out has like sparked up a huge amount of discourse around the graphic novel as well as around this movie and it's such an interesting problem to think about the adaptation of the Killing Joke which is a great graphic novel that is very much a part of its era and the the way it uses Barbara Gordon is very much a part of its era and it's like something where if you are trying to adapt it to a movie you are faced with that hard question of like do we try to update this thing that like what they do to Barbara Gordon in The Killing Joke is super fucked up and not in just a way of like oh the shock value in a way of like the way they use the character it's sexist it's wrong and in the history of comic books it's like devastating for that character Because like it, it, it kicked Barbara Gordon basically out of DC Comics For like 10 plus years Before they could finally came around to sort of like Turning her into Oracle and turning her into a much more Interesting character and like using her again It's like all that shit is fucked up And bad and was bad in like a social Context when it happened and it's just If you did it now in that story I think for a lot Of people it would feel incredibly dated and Awkward to just have that if you didn't Have the the ...sort of historical context around that decision... ...and why that decision was made... ...and when it was made... ...and the state of the comic book industry... ...when that choice was made... ...it's like... ...that's a hard question to tackle... And, but in the, ...and so... ...the idea of like... ...well let's make Batgirl more involved... ...and that's like one way to sort of fix that issue... ...I think that is one way to go about it... ...but you're right... ...like one... ...they went about it... ...the wrong fucking way through... ...like all... ...like top to down it seems... ...like one... Like, they, the way they use Batgirl is just sexist, awkward, and gross, and her relationship with Batman is sexist and awkward and gross, and just, like, her characterization is sexist, awkward, and gross. But then also, just the, like you said, the positioning of a. I I think even, like, your idea for me doesn't quite work, of, like, whether it's, like, a prologue, like, that's just at the beginning, or it's, like, an extended sequence that happens after the very beginning of The Killing Joke, and there's, like, some time there... None of that fixes the problem of how Batgirl is used in that story. No, it needs. Because the problem with that is that it is a story that is about Batman and Joker's relationship that then also incidentally completely destroys Barbara Gordon's life. And that's what's wrong. If it's going to... If, like, you can have a story where Batgirl, besides Barbara Gordon, is shot and paralyzed, but that story has to be about her. It's really fucked up for that just to be some side thing. And that's part of the... Almost, I think, the the historical and cultural context of that book, I think, is that that book is very aware in some ways of the, like, weird sort of toxic masculine environment in which it's made of the comic books in the 80s, and it's trying to, with its themes of Batman and Joker and how they're so alike and how there's very little distinguishing them, it's trying to argue against some of those and demonstrate how they are both, in a lot of ways, very negative figures of masculinity, but at the same time, that book also practices those same those same sort of philosophies and how it treats Batgirl. And that's one of the things that makes it interesting to me
0: as, as a cultural artifact. It's, it's a common problem with Alan Moore's things in the 80s, where a lot of it is him thumbing his nose at people like Frank Miller. Right. And 95% he's doing it right, and there's 5% where he falls into the same traps. And I think that's yeah. true in Watchmen. I think it's true in V for Vendetta. It's, it's true in his classic books.
1: Yeah, but I think it's something where in some ways like it's sort of unavoidable and it's something where like you know my I've talked about this on this podcast numerous times but like a lot of my focus in st- my studies in college was involved with Victorian literature and one of the reasons why I like that is the same reason why I like stuff like Watchmen and Killing Joke is that a lot of great Victorian literature stuff like I mean like Pride and Prejudice is not quite Victorian but it's close enough Pride and Prejudice is a very good example of a novel that is both simultaneously trying to argue against Like these sort of negative cultural norms of femininity, of like falling in love, or not falling in love, but marrying, and marrying for money, and the cultural expectations around that for women, and trying to argue against that. But then at the same time, at the end of that novel, what does the protagonist do? She marries a rich guy, and she does it supposedly for love, but I think it's like the novel is not totally able to escape the cultural norms in which it exists, because nothing is and the distance we have from it allows us to recognize the ways in which it fails, but also the ways it's trying to escape the cultural pit, the pitfalls that, that exist in the time it was made. And I think, like, the most great art has that quality to it, so I think The Killing Joke has that quality to it as well. But, like, the thing is, to go back to what I was trying to say, like, one of the things with the, how they, like, how you fix The Killing Joke is not to make... Batgirl more important at the beginning of the story is to make her more important at the end of the story the problem isn't that Batgirl doesn't feature a lot in the story the problem is that she doesn't feature in the important part of the story which is generally the climax she has after she is shot she get like one scene of her in the hospital and she basically doesn't show up again she has nothing to do with catching the Joker she has nothing to do with the sort of thematic argument being made at the end of the story that's where you need more Batgirl is involved with that side of the story not the setup adding more to her in the setup i don't think it like tries makes the problem better by making her more of a character i think it makes the problem worse by highlighting even more how little the story actually has to do with her
0: yeah no i totally agree and it's it's and again part of why it's disappointing is when it's good it's pretty good yeah like the the way they handle the flashback scenes which are probably my least favorite part of the killing joke book They're Mm -hmm. my favorite part of this movie because I love sort of the atmosphere and the animation, the color scheme, and the way Mark Hamill does the voice of the Joker as a person is fascinating. It's really good. And so that's cool. Again, some of the final scenes with Batman and the Joker are good. But no matter how good the movie gets, and I do think there are moments where like the music is great and some of the creative choices being made by the animators are good, you can never forget what they've done up to that point and it just sours the whole thing. It's impossible to enjoy. I, uh, purely I think So that's Yeah And I, t- I talk about the animation being cheap It's a little unfair This is a direct to video movie And you know I saw it in a theater And some of it looked fine on the big screen I do think some of the animation is really bad I I, I mean
1: even I think even by I, mean, I, I haven't like watched the whole movie But I've seen numerous clips and stuff like that and, and I've watched most of the DC animated output I haven't watched the recent stuff But like the, the animation Like the, the Red Hood one Is way
0: better than this The animation on the Joker himself is terrible I don't mm-hmm. even know where yeah. to be I don't, And I, it's not even vaguely related to Brian Bolland's Design of him So I don't know Where the fuck They got it But like his chin Is like three times As long as his head He's I don't know what His model is But he feels Like he's constantly Off model From what he was In the scene before Right And it's like Mark Hamill's performance Has trouble getting Through that um, Batman is very Kind of sparsely animated I don't think that works It does not recall The look of the Killing joke Almost at all As a, as a book And that's no, that is a problem. I'm sorry. Like I, I yeah. know they're never gonna make it look just like the book. That's because yeah, the complaint. book
1: is such like it has such a detailed, realistic yes. art style to it that it's like hard to. You, you can't do you that. Animated, obviously. But
0: you could feel like you have some influence. It yeah, just yeah. it looks it just looks weird and bad a lot of the time. And it you know again it feels like where where do they put the money? It's in Barbara Gordon's ass. That's where they put the money in their animation. And, you know, okay, if you didn't have the money to really do a, a feature-length version of this, then why didn't you do the 40-minute version of it and make it look good? Right. But it's just there's a lot of issues. It's it's a real disappointment, especially because this is, A, a great graphic novel, and this would be the moment to think about it and try to figure out how to maybe update it. Right. Does Barbara Gordon need to get paralyzed in the story? That's a question right. you could yeah. actually sit down and ask. And that's not the question this, As an adaptation This is panel for panel Word for word They have made zero changes Once you get into it It's just the book Right So it's I don't even know If you can call that An adaptation You know Uh uh-huh. It's a translation That's all it is
1: yeah, so, it's, Sometimes
0: it's decent And sometimes it's Offensively awful So
1: it's, It just feels like when they announced this, it just seemed it always seemed like such an obvious thing of like, oh, they have this like DC animated movie thing that they do. Mark Hamill has said he wanted to do the Killing Joke. It seems like that's a like that's that's a fucking easy one, you know? They're just gonna knock that one out of the park. You don't have to do that much. Like, I mean, because I think like it would be nice to try to update it, but honestly, like I think it, the the best path would to do would be like just do a fairly faithful adaptation, like change the stuff you need to change to make it work as a movie and like to animate it, but like. I think for personally that's probably the direction I would go with it and just like because because like trying to change that that decision with the book just seems like there's so much that goes into that and like how much do you want to like sort of like change what the, what that book was and like like its original cultural context and like trying to actually fix that problem I think involves changing so much around that decision that like you're never going to please everybody with that choice but it just seems like no matter what approach you want to take Whether you want to update it Or whether you want to just do something a lot more faithful It feels like they just did the wrong choice In every single direction that they could have It just seems insane to me that, that it turned out this way
0: mm-hmm. And I'm not uh, Saying this to compare these two movies Qualitatively because I think one of them is much better Than the other but I do think it's conspicuous The two worst DCAU movies to me By far are this and The Dark Knight Returns Right yeah I just uh, Easily and yeah, I, I agree with I, that having seen a lot more than you have I, <laughs> I just Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, I guess my conclusion is just don't do the Long Halloween if you ever get the, the urge.
1: <laughs> I saw some people saying like, well, maybe they should just do the Long Halloween. It's like, how do you even... The Long Halloween's not even like one story. It's just a collection of stories. Like, it's not... How, how the fuck would you even adapt Long Halloween? And actually, like thinking about other DC animated movies that I didn't like so much, I didn't like their Batman year one one either. Okay, So maybe there's just something about classic Batman stories from the 80s that is just like... Don't go
0: near those And they exist out of time I mean you're yeah. so right About the Killing Joke It's it's It holds up I think Much better than Any of the Frank Miller stories Oh god yeah But it is still You have to understand The context Yeah and I mean it's
1: much it's, it's a lot better When you understand The context in which It was made I think it, it's something That makes that story Very light Like it reads
0: to me Really well Within the context Of when it was made It was Alan Moore Doing kind of an angry screed Against Batman I mean that's what it is You can't do it As a straight Batman story Which is also part I think tonally The movie misses Is it's It's an anti-Batman story It's not a Batman story It's not It
1: is it is It is a story That is basically saying Batman is kind of The Joker he just doesn't quite kill people. Like I feel like that is like the characterization of Batman in that story. Is like he's this big stoic guy that goes around and beats people up and he's trying to do the right thing. But he's this like, kind of, he's a violent psychopath. But in a much more interesting way than the Frank Miller violent psychopath where this violent psychopath is a bad thing. The Frank Miller wants you to think the violent psychopath is a good thing.
0: Still not the worst Batman movie to come out this year. Yeah it's it's definitely not the
1: worst It's not the worst Batman movie Or it's not the worst movie that has Batman in the title I'm not sure either of these I would qualify as actual Batman movies at
0: this point Yeah Speaking of which
1: Because a Batman who kills people And a Batman who has sex with Barbara Gordon (laughs) Neither of those are Batman Those are both so insanely off character I cannot possibly recognize them as actual representations of the character Batman
0: They're just crazy people (laughs) pretending to be Batman Speaking of which, we're going to hit some news right now. Okay. And I'm moving these around because why don't we talk about Suicide Squad right now? Okay, yeah. We, I, I, are you going to try to see the movie? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, I, I'm Batman v Superman really kicked my ass, man. I know. I, here's, here's what I'm going to say. I am going to try to see the movie. Okay. And if, if you don't want to, you don't have to. Okay. I, I free you from that. As podcast co-host, oh, that's a that's weight off my if, shoulders. If you want to, we can talk about it. Okay, okay, yeah, we'll see. We'll just see. we'll see. Uh, I will talk about it next week. I'll take one for the team. I'm just okay. too curious not to. But the reviews are out. Even the good ones rub me the wrong way personally. Yeah, the, even the
1: good ones are tepid at best.
0: And 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 I and I don't want to. And I want to say right up front: if you like this movie as a critic, or you're going to like it as a fan. More power to you This does not sound like It is anywhere near As offensive to the mythos As something like Batman v Superman But but even like critics I very much respect Who liked it I read their review And I don't find it Disingenuous That's not my point It's just The things they like about it Sound like things That would annoy me A little bit So that's all I'm saying but that's it and, and I think more than The reviews being bad It's the larger issue For a news item Of this cultural conversation That DCA Apparently can't make A coherent movie No B there's all the reports Coming out now That they had competing cuts And they yeah. David Iyer apparently Did stick with the movie Through to the end This was not a situation Like Josh Trank On Fantastic Four Or anything like that But it was a case Where he had one version Of the movie Batman v Superman came out, and the studio decided we have to do something different. Yeah. So there's that.
1: Yeah, so like all those reports of
0: reshoots are yeah. like, yeah, And it, true. it again feeds the narrative that we have a, a multiple DC movies now where directors have either left, or they've been fired because they just couldn't do what they wanted to yeah, do. or
1: like interfered with in the
0: process. Yeah, yeah so there's all of that, um, and it's just, it's a bad look, and I want to say I completely called it last week. Yeah. Joker's not in the movie He's in it yeah. for like Five minutes apparently I was and wrong. He's, I was totally right He's barely in the movie Is what every report says And that pisses me off Not because I like Need to see Jared Leto's Joker No but Because I, I kind
1: of Don't really want to See Jared Leto's Joker I don't,
0: I don't give I mean I don't I have nothing against The performance of the Joker It's the hype around it That yeah. pisses me off Where it's like 99% of the hype is him The other 1% is Harley Quinn Yeah And Harley Quinn sounds like she is the main character in the movie, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, like, the Joker stuff, it's like, that's all anyone talks about is his weird stupid method stunts, and, and they had all those pictures of the costuming coming out, and he's a cameo in the movie. And so it's like... That just pisses me off on a marketing level. I don't like it when people do. It's a bait and switch, and I don't like that. I
1: mean, because they've been like. He feels like he's a significant player in every single. I mean, he's the stinger at the end of the first trailer they released for this movie.
0: He's second build.
1: Yeah. It's ridiculous.
0: And this this isn't a Mark Hamill in Star Wars 7 situation where Mark Hamill has to be second build because he's Mark Hamill. Yeah. He does not have to be second build if he's a seven minute cameo, which is everything I've heard. And so, again, that does not necessarily impact the movie's quality. That Although impact- it might. It sounds it might.
1: like it does. Because it sounds like not only is it a seven-minute cameo, it's a seven-minute non-sequitur.
0: Yes. Because also, like, what I think both of us assumed, and I think this you could make a pretty good movie with this, is the Joker winds up being the villain, and Harley Quinn, yeah. as kind of the main character, has her loyalties tested. That writes itself, frankly. Yeah, and, and- that
1: was, that was the, the last podcast we had. That was my conclusion, was after, like... Suicide Squad trailers... ...that Joker... ...through sheer process of elimination... ...had to be the villain in the movie... ...because there was literally no other character... ...shown in any of the trailers in a villainous light at all it had to be the Joker and it's not the fucking Joker so who's the villain
0: of the fucking movie like I just assumed the plot was Amanda Waller sends them to do something they don't know it's the Joker they find yeah. out it's the Joker while on the mission and then that's when things go crazy because Harley Quinn compromises the team again it writes itself yeah it's such an obvious plot that literally that is a
1: Suicide Squad story from the comic books like you don't need to go far to get that idea it's a pretty good idea Instead, so it's Enchantress yeah it's Kind of. In, it's, man, reading the, the general plot description from some of the reviews is m- probably going to be the best part of this whole movie because oh, yeah. that plot sounds like an insane mess. It no, sounds I, like it makes a lot of sense, based on the plot of that movie, why you can't figure out who the villain is from the
0: trailer. Yes, and it sounds also like why every trailer was for a different movie. Yeah. That's literally what happened. The Comic-Con trailer last year, where it was all super somber, that's apparently what the original version of the movie was. Yeah, And then they did the second trailer that was all fun, and then that got good reception, so Warner Brothers said, Make that, here's some money for reshits. Yeah, and
1: here we've licensed a couple of pop songs, throw yep. that in there.
0: And apparently they're all in the movie too, which that just yeah. rubs me so far the wrong way. I mean... People have been making this joke on Twitter, and it sounds like it is the movie. It's Hot Topic the movie, uh-huh. and I don't need to see Hot Topic the movie.
1: No, yeah, I feel like I would melt if I watched Hot Topic the movie.
0: <laughs> so, just like,
1: it's just like I'm the Wicked Witch and Hot Topic the movie is water. It's just, it's gone, gone.
0: I'm a hole in the floor. And the weird thing is, relative to expectations, this might be one of the only big like successes of the summer, given right. how it's tracking in, in terms of dollars. And I'm curious to see... And I, I, I am pretty damn sure that tracking has to be off. I cannot imagine a world in which Suicide Squad opens to $150 million. That no, sounds yeah. so silly to me. It could happen, I guess, but I, I, I don't know. I, I think that's weird. But, you know, just getting back to the issues with the, the news side of it, it's just, it is this perception thing where DC had two at-bats this year, And before either of them even got to general audiences, they just kind of struck out. Yeah. And it was through muddled marketing, and it was through a lot of weird decisions, and frankly, everything I keep hearing about how, you know, what we saw in Batman v Superman and everything I've heard about this movie and what we've seen of the characters and like, you know, Harley Quinn and how they kind of treat that character, even though it seems like Marco Robbie is really good, I hate how that character is presented in the trailers and stuff. Yeah, I mean,
1: in every single trailer, they have the shot of her, like, putting her shirt on.
0: Yeah. No, I she's completely, she's dressed like a stripper, and I don't... Mean that in a derogatory way to her, but to the studio where she's wearing, you know, basically panties and leggings, so yeah. you see most of her body, and it's just complete hypersexualization. Margot Robbie has even spoken in interviews about how it made her uncomfortable, and none of the men are dressed that way. Yeah. And people who say, "Well, the Joker has a shirt off," you can go fuck yourself and read any feminist work. Yeah. you'll figure
1: it out. Yeah, I feel like it's like it's kind of useless to try to deflect that argument at this point because nobody ever listens when you respond with. That's not how sexualization of characters work. It's not equivalent just because oh, all male character, like look, Batman has his shirt off in of this panel too. It's like that doesn't mean that they're nope. not over sexualizing Catwoman. You really don't understand the arguments here. No,
0: you don't. And they're not sexualizing the Joker when he has his shirt off. Yeah. You might be sexualizing the Joker when he has his shirt off. we are all sexualized. And I'm, sexualizing and the I'm Joker. not judging you for that, but they want you to sexualize Harley Quinn and that's the difference. Yeah. So there's all of that it's but my my larger point is I really wonder if anyone working on DC movies has ever seen DC stuff before. Yeah. It's just... None of this feels like any of the characters I know in any form. And, you know, I said this on Twitter... I understand someone like Harley Quinn is a hard character to get right. Yeah, I will be like she's, first...
1: a, she's an insanely cartoonish character. She's
0: very tough. Step one is not booty shorts. Yeah,
1: I mean, hey, guess guess what Harley Quinn did not wear... In her, like, original incarnation in the animated series... Anything that revealed any skin at all. She was so not sexualized as a character, it's kind of impossible to like read something sexual in her.
0: Yeah, and they've flirted with that off and on over the years, you know. Yeah, like
1: the video games obviously have done their redesigns of Harley Quinn. I'm not a huge fan of.
0: No, and although I think... That she's more than that In those movies yeah, In those games yeah. Which is good But yeah I, And I, I'm curious I mean it's, it's weird for me Because I love Harley Quinn As a character The only reason I'm excited To see the movie Is I do I am interested in what Margot Robbie is doing with it Right But I feel like Whatever she's doing It's going to be in spite Of other things And I don't like that Yeah And I just feel like Also like You know Even if this movie does well Everything we've heard about the on stuff with this Who's going to want to come back for this movie Other than Jared Leto so he can go crazy again
1: Yeah apparently like just someone Is giving him cocaine in like the back For the whole I, movie this, He just like showed up and was like Okay we're going to shoot your scene today Jared And then you can go like do some other stuff Like I'm just going to stay the whole time And fucking jack off in condoms and send them to people Because that's real funny That's
0: method acting And I mean it's like, it sounds like everyone says Viola Davis is fantastic as yeah, she always is That
1: makes me happy that Amanda Waller is really good
0: great she was apparently miserable filming this thing because Jared Leto was sexually harassing her by sending her used condoms so if she's in another one of these I will be shocked right and I would be kind of this it's the same with some of the other characters in this maybe they can
1: just appease her and have like write the scene in the Suicide Squad 2 where like Joker shows up and she just snaps Joker's neck and kills him because Amanda Waller's a fucking badass no
0: she would and and so those are things I'm interested in No one is suggesting this is in any way as bad as Batman v Superman but it sounds like it has so many of the same fundamental problems of a studio that doesn't understand the stuff, doesn't know what they want to do, are being completely reactive, are reworking movies after they're shot and coming out and not normal. Reshoots are fine if you are, uh, you know... If
1: you're trying to remake the movie after you've made it, like, that's you not did s- fine. No, yeah. that's... Like, reshoots are for, like, filling in some holes and stuff. It's yes. not for remaking the tone of the whole thing. Like,
0: people briefly panicked when it said uh, Rogue One was doing reshoots. It sounds like that's totally normal reshoots, where yeah. it's, Oh, we looked at our edit, and we'd like to change this, this, and this, and that needs punching up. Let's do it. And that's, 99% of movies do that. Yeah. So, that's, you know, that's a totally different thing. Uh, I just, I don't know. And, and we've got to talk about the culture war here. Yeah. Yeah. Here's here's what I want to describe things. Okay. So there's this weird... People who are on the outside keep saying, oh man, this DC Marvel war is weird. One, There's no no DC Marvel war. There there hasn't been for years. There is no DC Marvel war. There are DC fans who are paranoid and think there's a DC Marvel war. Yeah. It's just like we really don't have an illegal immigration problem right now. Right, yeah. We really don't have all that much of a violent crime problem right now other than with mass gun violence that they're not addressing anyway. Right. But Donald Trump is making an issue of that And it's not real. Yeah. It's the same thing with DC people who are, I don't know where these people come from, I don't know what they are, but they are trying to pretend there's this giant culture war between DC and Marvel. It's not a
1: thing. Yeah, I mean, for God's sakes, like like the DC Marvel split as like like the sort of like the second Nintendo Console Wars kind of thing. That hasn't been a thing since like the late eighties. Like that, and they had like the comic book bases of both of them normalized towards each other where they both have such a broad range of characters and they share creative voices all the time, go across both the companies, that it's like you can find DC books that are like Marvel books and Marvel books that are like DC books. They like They're not that different. There's slightly different flavors to the overall universes, but there's not a big like people who are like people aren't Marvel fans or DC fans if they're reading the comic books. They are comic book fans because
0: they're going to read bits of both whatever interests them. If this was the Sega Nintendo split, here's what it would be though. Right now with the movies, yeah, it would be let's say Nintendo is Marvel with their movies, yeah, and it's the it's the normal Super NES library. It's you got your Metroids, you got Legends of Link to the Past. You've got Mario World, all the great games. Yeah. They're all there. It's a really good system. You get your money's worth. And it would be like, if you had that, and then DC is Sega, and the Genesis comes out broken, and you can't use it, and you have to get a yeah. patch, you have to send it in and get it repaired, and then the first game just gives you the middle finger yeah, for three hours.
1: Instead of Sonic the Hedgehog 1, you got Sonic 3D Blast, was the first Sonic game that came out, and yes. just sinks the system.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's that's the split. There's no war, and I'm sorry if, if upset DC fanboys... Can't hear me say this the, the MCU stuff Is a series of good movies yeah. With an average level of quality That make money And people want to watch Yeah That people That's, like That like the audiences is, like There is baseline Cinematic competency Yeah and I'm sorry if you can't hear that. They're not paying off fucking critics yeah. to sink your precious DC movies. It's the DC the Warner Brothers people are not comic book people. They don't know how to do a shared universe like this and they don't know how to run a franchise.
1: Yeah. And like they don't respect their characters. They don't respect the comic books. And like and all it just it feels like a cash grab. It feels just like well Marvel has done this shared universe thing that is getting them a lot of money because it's getting people to, like, come under the Marvel brand and see Marvel movies and not just see the Iron Man movies or, or just see the Captain America movies. They see all of them. And so DC wants a piece of that pie but, isn't, but never did the work to get the piece of that pie that Marvel did in the first place. They just want it.
0: So, I mean, and this is the point. They don't respect their characters. Moreover, they don't respect you. If you're yeah. the crazy DC fanboy and you really think Batman v Superman was good enough for you, you are kind of pathetic.
1: Yeah, you're selling yourself short. Yes, because they didn't
0: give a shit about you.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's like, and it is one of my favorite things now, ever since Batman v Superman, and now with Suicide Squad, is when one of these movies come out and then it gets a rotten score on Rotten Tomatoes, is to go onto the DC underscore cinematic subreddit on Reddit, which is just the saddest conglomeration of people. It's just the most incredible corner of the internet. It's like... Where you have Because it feels like It is a collection Of people That would have A bunch of Of like the super extreme Political opinions We've seen in this election Only they have them About fucking Comic book movies Instead of <laughs> like, Things that matter like, yeah, Instead of like Gun violence And immigration And like college tuition And like like Social issues That are important They have it about like No Like it's not about Like whether or not Democrats rigged the election It's whether more, Like D- Disney is paying off Critics to like Sink Batman v Superman Which is the most pathetic conspiracy theory I think I've ever heard in my whole life It's not like 9-11 was an inside job It's not like America faked the moon landing To like posture themselves in the Cold War It's no critics are being paid off To give bad reviews to bad movies Like fucking are you serious And there's so many people that have that opinion And are so loud about it It's, it's, It's horrifying in some
0: ways I don't want to say I get it, because I don't. Yeah. I get uh, the part of it which is that I think if you like DC Comics and you want these movies... And you see Marvel and you're like, I want that for my characters.
1: Right, yeah. I understand that
0: feeling as someone who's a big
1: fan of Superman.
0: Yes. But you're not saying people rigged the reviews for Man of Steel. No, I'm
1: saying Man of Steel was a shit Superman movie. I want them to make a good Superman movie. It's, It's something where all these people are so obsessed and hyped up about these DC movies before they know anything about them just coming out of like the announcement of the movie before they even seen the first trailer they are already assuming it's going to be amazing that like by the time it comes out they've already brainwashed themselves they've already told themselves over and over so many times Suicide Squad's going to be great, or Batman v Superman's going to be great. And if you think that to yourself constantly, and are constantly getting into like heated internet arguments all the time about that issue, and you're constantly trying to defend the DC's movie stuff because you, for whatever reason you have assigned your identity to it, of course you're going to like the fucking movie. It's the same reason why you, like you said with like Trump, it's the same reason why there are so many people who think that like violent crime is at an all high in America when it's the lowest it's been in over twenty years. Because the guy, if someone tells you something enough, and you don't think about it critically, you are just going to accept it over time. It's like documented psychological effect. Yes. Don't fucking do that to yourself over movies. That's a fucking crazy person thing to do. Just... Watch the trailers and if you think it looks like it's a good movie, go see it. Or if like, you're interested culturally and artistically in the, the superhero movie fad right now, go see the movie and like form your own opinion about it. But don't sit there and have arguments that you've already decided that this movie is going to be great before you know anything about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And, you know, I'm open that I might enjoy the movie when I go see it.
1: Yeah, and Will Smith is in it. He's cool. Martha cool. Robbie is in there's, it. She's cool. There's a
0: lot of people I like, and I'm sure there... Are, I, I have no doubt that there are good things in this movie. This does not look like a dumpster fire the way Batman v Superman yeah. is to me. Or a complete dumpster fire. A partial dumpster fire. But, you know, it, yeah, so, yeah. so I'm open to all that. But, yes, I mean, as you say, it's, it's the culture that is so baffling with this. And, I mean, my favorite thing now is the petition to shut down Rotten Tomatoes, which just aggregates critics. It's yeah. not... And it's, that's the thing that,
1: like, if Suicide Squad had come out and gotten, like, rave reviews, no one would give it, like, everyone would be pointing at, like, look how good its Rotten Tomatoes score is. It's like, they don't give a shit about Rotten Tomatoes, they're just angry, no, angry. and they're just trying to use whatever argument they can to try and- to justify their own anger.
0: And I think Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic should be shut down for very different reasons. Sure. I think they're a poison to the internet because right. of the way people treat this data stuff. But that's a different I just discussion. like
1: to go to them because they point to you to all the other reviews so I yes. don't have to like follow a bunch no. of different websites. And I,
0: and I like Rotten Tomatoes because it does not uh, it's not the mafia grip on gaming sites and shit. Right, yeah, yeah. Which Metacritic is a horrible, horrible, horrible organization. Yeah, it doesn't
1: feel like... Like everyone's like Who's involved with the Production of the movie Their like whole livelihood Depends on whether or not It's an 87 or an 88 On Rotten
0: Tomatoes Yes But no I mean The, the Rotten Tomatoes thing Is funny uh, I think it's also like People saying Oh critics had their Knives out for this one I can maybe understand That argument for Batman v Superman Because it looked So obviously awful I don't think critics Had their knives out for this Yeah
1: no like I think like, people
0: like, were Interested in this movie It's yeah. had positive hype The trailers I don't, I don't think either of us Have enjoyed them much It's good marketing it's, yeah,
1: I think because if you're just looking at them as like like whatever, it's a movie trailer. It's a fun trailer. We obviously like we we dig into these things. And yeah. There's like a lot of things
0: to nitpick about them about so, how, like they're weird marketing for the movie. So no, I don't think anyone had their knives out for this movie. No, I don't have my knives out for this movie. I you know there are things I'm worried about. The way I'm hearing this movie treats female characters and stuff, I'm sick of it. I, right, I yeah. I can't it this if it really if the worst I've heard about Harley Quinn is true in the movie. I'm probably just done with DC and I'm just gonna I think we're gonna stop talking about it on the podcast yeah if, if we like want to I until think Wonder I'm, Woman comes out and we like reconvene on the topic maybe I, I you know I might be out I honestly Wonder Woman has Zack Snyder's name on it as a producer and a writer uh, this is the guy who did Sucker Punch this is the guy who did Batman v Superman and um, just because it has a female director does not mean that it will be a bastion of feminism. Right. I am fully prepared that that could be a horrible stain oh, yeah. on like, female superheroes. Of course you should. Like, it. It's, like, that is a, and a I, huge possibility. And I didn't want to say it last week because I know we were all in the afterglow of what was a, the best trailer the DC Extended Universe has ever cut for anything. Right. And I think if any DC movie has a chance of being good, it's that one. I... It, they, it's got Zack Snyder's name on it I don't know how else to It's like if It's not that far from putting Frank Miller's name on it And, right, and yeah. you know I'm not I'm worried about that And I think you should be too
1: Yeah This no, is a like
0: company it. that has shown Or this This, this isn't even a company the, the Warner Brothers division That does the DC stuff Has shown flagrant disregard For their female characters In a way that probably Is the most offensive thing About everything they've done so far yeah. And it's seeped into their comics And it's seeped into their animated movies And it's unacceptable yeah. And if you know the worst thing we can say about Marvel's treatment of women is that scene in Avengers Age of Ultron where they Joss Whedon maybe didn't write something as elegantly as he wanted and some people read out of that things that seem more offensive about Black right, Widow yeah. which I disagree with but I understand the argument. Sure, yeah. That's a better position to be in than constantly your women are strippers in your movies or are are Amy Adams doing nothing. Yeah. It's and also getting naked in your movies, because that's her biggest scene in the film, is naked in the bathtub. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, I forgot so, about that. yeah, movie. you know. Again, Zack Snyder, Sucker Punch, that is the movie that... I actually re-linked my review to this the other day, because I, it's a, I think it's a kind of funny review, because I go into this stuff. The, the plot of that movie is that women are in trouble, so they imagine themselves in a brothel to live a better life. That's what he thinks about women. Yeah,
1: again, Zack Snyder is the Frank Miller of movies... <laughs> He always has been. We just didn't know it. All
0: right. Let's move on. Uh, other big piece of news this week, really only big piece of news we're going to cover, is uh, reports came out about the Nintendo NX. This was from yeah. Uh, it uh was?
1: I think Eurogamer broke
0: Eurogamer, it. Eurogamer. That's what I mean. Yeah. I get those mixed up. I don't know why. Uh, but Eurogamer broke this, and um, a very reliable source, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And this is kind of our best look yet at what the NX will be. We have had a lot of different rumors. Uh, but a lot of,
1: like, fake controller mock-ups yes. and scams and stuff like that. But it
0: sounds like we have a very solid idea of what it will be. Some things could change. I think some of the bigger questions uh, still remain. About, but like, the power of the system yes, and stuff like that is the a big, big question mark right now. And it's my question mark. Yeah, but yeah. we're going to get into this. So it sounds like what it is is it's a handheld system... Um, with, you know, basic controller stuff on both sides and a screen in the middle. And it would be in you know, a high def screen, all this stuff, fairly powerful. Yeah. And then you could dock that in a home console and it would show up on your TV. And you could kind of break the controllers off or maybe use an external controller or something and put it together. And then you could play it on your home console TV. Yeah. And they've, they have did their own little mock-ups of this. I've seen other mock-ups. Um, and I'm interested to hear what you think My basic conclusions I've done a lot of thinking about this Because I think yeah. it's fascinating Yeah, I think this is a risky thing If it works I think it's brilliant I think this could be exactly what Nintendo needs I think it could keep them in the handheld market Where they're dominant And it could bring them back into the console market In a way that's innovative um, And I think as someone who loves handheld gaming And obviously loves console gaming And loves Nintendo stuff This could be a perfect marriage of that my worries are about how exactly it will work. Yeah. My biggest question mark is the power stuff. Um, Eurogamer, and this was the part they sounded shakiest on. Yeah, But it sounds like the chip it's using is, and, the, and the, you know the graphics processor and stuff, is powerful. But it's like an Android sort of powerful, like for yeah. Android tablets. It would obviously run better in this case because it's going to be optimized for gaming with a Nintendo operating system and stuff. Um, but it would be, you know, so it would be significantly more powerful than like the PS3 and Xbox One, or Xbox 360, but underpowered compared to the PS4 and Xbox One. Yeah. And that worries me a little bit. I'm wondering how does it compare to the Wii U? If Zelda Breath of the Wild is their launch game, um, is it going to be better or worse than on the Wii U? Yeah. Um, what kinds of games are they aiming to make going forward? Um, those are all questions... I'm very interested though to see what it will be. I guess the other part of the report was that it's going to use cartridges, yeah. which we'd heard about. Which I have people keep thinking like it's Game Boy cartridges. It's just high density. It makes sense. Yeah, that is the one thing I really
1: didn't like about the Eurogamer article. Article is that the picture they uses is they like photoshopped a Game Boy cartridge with like for the yeah. Legend of the Breath of the Wild uh, artwork on it. It was like don't do that because now everyone's going to think that that's what it looks like. Like I, no. it's a cool looking picture for your yes. article, but it's like. You didn't think it all the way through because now, like you said, everyone thinks that means like Game Boy cartridges. like, you do know that like the Vita and the 3DS both use cartridges, right? Like, yes. it's not like that's and a it's... completely obsolete
0: media form. If it's going to be mobile, you want cartridges because it's less movement, moving parts. Oh well, Yeah, and you can fit plenty of storage on these things. There are flash drives with two terabytes if you yeah. want it, you know. So that's, I don't see that as a problem. But uh, so that's my reaction. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think I've, my reaction is more or less similar to you. I think one of my big question marks. Um, is like this both the power I'm very curious about Like Because I think it's a, Attached to the power Is what is like The battery life Of this thing going to be Because that's Where I think like Where do they put The emphasis I guess Is my biggest question Is like Is it more of a home thing Or more of a mobile thing Like do they sacrifice Some of the battery power To get more juice Into that thing So it's more impressive As a home console Or like sacrifice Some of the graphics power So that it has more juice For the battery Like how does all that stuff work like that that's i think like all those like very technical questions are very interesting to me and i think the the base concept of the console makes sense it's an interesting idea i think it's also related to like is it more of a mobile or more of a home thing like i'm curious how are they going to manage to market this like what are they like how are they going to try to push it what is their real like demographic that they're going for like that's what my
0: biggest question is is like how is that going to work because nobody's really tried this before that's a huge question to me because if it's a handheld first then they're competing with the 3ds which i really don't think is dead yet and i think it would be you know i I wonder what their future plans for this kind of stuff is if this means it's kind of the end of the ds line then one that's something to talk about because that's really significant yeah it's one of the most successful things to ever happen in gaming yeah um and it's something that I don't necessarily see Nintendo just abandoning right now. Um, so it would make sense to me to position it more as a home console thing. Um, and it totally could be. I mean, that's, that's not, I yeah. think, ruled out at all by this. But as you say, yeah, that's where the questions lie because... And this is the thing. Are you, they're clearly replacing the Wii U. Yes. Yeah. But are you also killing the 3DS and replacing that? Because that's less of a sure thing to me. Yeah. And that's less of a necessary thing to me at this juncture. Especially having released a new version of the 3DS last year. Yeah. That's, so those are kind of the weird questions. Um, are you just cleaning house and doing... It's all new, and I, I guess I get that as a strategy. Yeah. But I don't know.
1: Yeah, because also part of the Eurogamer article was them, and this is also something that seemed like it a little bit fuzzy, was that, like, the nature of what this thing is going to be, if it is, like, cartridge-based and all that stuff, it would mean that, like, it cannot be backwards compatible. Like, if, like, especially, like, if it can't... But, like, I think part of the thing is, like, we don't know the whole situation of, like... Because if it has, like, this whole dock that goes into the TV, it is possible that that might have some, like, like a dysfunctionality associated with it that could play Wii U games or who knows. Like, does the, the tablet part with the screen and the controller, is that also a touchscreen? Because if they, like, if it has all that stuff, it could theoretically play Wii U games. And it could theoretically play DS games if you have a TV and that thing where it could just emulate DS on there, like, have split screens. It would be awkward, but you can do it like like that's because that's one of the things that to me is kind of really disappointing about this as someone who like has been pretty frustrated with Nintendo for a very long time but is still like very interested in a lot of the games that Nintendo puts out and i am about every other month i get so close to buying a 3DS and then i back off cuz it's still like i just feel like i can't spend that much money right now cuz i don't even know if i have the time to play any of these games but i want to play like Pokemon X and i want to play Fire Emblem so much so i keep on like hesitating there that like if the NX had like 3DS and Wii U backwards compatibility Like that would probably be a no brainer for me Because I don't have a 3DS and I don't have a Wii U I've missed both of those entire libraries If I could get something that was I knew was going to be supported going forwards Which it would help me just my, justify my purchase But it also allow me to buy Get like the 5 or 6 Wii U slash 3DS games That I really want to play I would probably get that maybe day one but like, if it but doesn't here, do that stuff, like I, then it's like a
0: huge question mark for me. You're not who they're aiming for. Yeah, I don't think, and I think it has. This cannot be backwards compatible. To me, I'm just thinking as a business strategy. Right, you have to ditch the Wii stuff. You cannot have the Wii Motes. You cannot have any of that. Depending on that periphery, it's a huge problem with the Wii U. That it is so dependent on the Wii, and the Wii was so dependent on GameCube stuff. Right, they have not had a clean break since the N64 broke from like the Super NES you know it's they just haven't done it and it's so you have you know, you would play the GameCube, and I guess that was a clean break. But then you'd play the Wii, and most of the time on the Wii, if I'm playing Smash Bros. or something, I've got a fucking GameCube controller in. Yeah. And then on the Wii U, a lot of Wii U stuff I have to play, I have to get all my Wii peripherals out. And if I want to play a virtual console game that was on the Wii but not the Wii U, I have to get the gamepad out, and then I have to go into the Wii menu, and then I have to get a Wii mode out, and then I have to put a classic controller in, and blah, 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 blah. Right. So all of this stuff, and it's, it's kind of messy, and I think it really confused people by the end of the Wii U's lifespan, I guess It's not over yet But by now You know right. And so I think If you're going to do the NX And try to get a new audience in It has to be something that Just clearly This is its own thing And if they can find ways To do certain kinds Of backwards compatibility I think that would be great oh, don't, I would, They will resell you Their NES and SNES no, library well, Don't worry No that's I, I mean like but, but What you were suggesting like right, I yeah. do think it's possible This could be Wii U games Whether it's digital downloads Or whether it's There's a disc tray On the, the main console hub I would not be surprised If they find some way To keep Wii U in there and I don't think That would be too hard Or distract from things
1: Yeah I mean It depends on Like what They, they ultimately like, like what kind of like Architecture and chip They ultimately use Which is again Like Eurogamer Has some ideas on it But it didn't seem Like they were 100% sure But if it doesn't use I think PowerPC Is the base That, that Wii U uses If it doesn't use that They're going to have To come up with An emulation solution Which seems unlikely To me yes. that they would have Be able to manage The software emulation And
0: I don't think There's any chance It'll have any kind Of DS backwards compatibility Maybe down the line On a virtual console thing But one, you wouldn't be able to do the 3D thing with the 3DS. Two, the 3DS has two... Is that
1: really that important to most 3DS
0: games? Uh, more than you'd think But also okay. it's, it's just a thing It's part of the system I mean there
1: is a console Called 2DS no, That runs 3DS I, games Without the 3D thing already And I get it if You can get that if you want
0: I wasn't done The other thing is There's two screens Of different uh, aspect ratios right. And the, the resolution Is going to be so vastly lower Than what this thing Is going to be It just You would have to do So much work to get it Viewable on this screen Yeah That would be a, a huge uh, Stumbling block as well So I, I don't think I think the 3DS Will continue to be It's own thing For at least a little while um, But yeah I don't I'm just so curious I want to hear the official announcement
1: yeah yeah it's one of the things that's a little bit frustrating about this like I feel like in some ways this report feels a bit weird because there's some things that it feels so fuzzy about whereas like when you compare that to when like the ps4 neo stuff leaked it felt like we just got all of it we just got the whole fucking thing just dumped in our laps without other than like like video of like the console and games running on the console we basically understood everything about what they were doing with it here it's like we've got basic ideas of it but we don't we don't like we have an idea of what the controller design is like trying to go for but we don't know what it actually really looks like we don't like have all those details and that's that's it's hard to sort of speculate on a lot of what this is
0: Yes, uh, you know, and I, I'm not sure I believe the power reports. It seems to me like they it would have to be a little more powerful than what they're talking about. Yeah. Especially because when you look at, people are already starting to talk about, we're developing for the NX, we're excited for the NX, Sonic Generations 2 or whatever it's going to be called is going to be on the NX and the yeah. PS4, things like that just... It doesn't seem like it's going to be underpowered to the point Where it would be prohibitive or else I don't think you'd have People from Ubisoft and other studios saying We're excited for this thing Oh, but I they're,
1: I, they're going to say that no matter what like, yeah. like, Remember Ubisoft said That they were excited about putting stuff out on the Wii U and then they Put out Zombie U. No
0: I know but I just Feel like if you got burned three years ago I don't know if you'd Go right back into it.
1: Ubisoft gets burned yeah. Every single console side. like they, they put out Everything on everything. They no, just go it. in you know, Hard and heavy every single yeah. time because
0: Fuck it, I guess. But I'm I'm just... I'm curious, you know, and and I... It's really making me wonder because this is such a weird hybrid thing, is Zelda Breath of the Wild going to be the big selling point of this at launch or is that just going to wind up being more of a Wii U game? I was thinking... It, this was going to be a Twilight Princess scenario But it almost sounds like it could be a little different Where yeah. the, it could be just as much for the Wii U As it is for this thing And maybe there's a reason they showed it on the Wii U At the E3 floor Yeah, like, like
1: the state of Nintendo right now I do not think that there is any reason to just assume That this console is going to be successful when it No learns. Like I think it's, it's Like Nintendo is, is in a precarious position It has been since the Wii U failed to take off And, like, this is an interesting strategy. It is what people have been speculating about for a long time about what Nintendo should do is combine their mobile side and their console side into one device. And, like, while that is a very interesting idea, I think it is also an idea that could fail horribly because it sounds super ambitious.
0: It absolutely could. I do think the flip side to that, though, is it could be genius. I mean, this could be... Uh, This could be a huge boon in Japan, where if you can combine those two things, that's you're printing money for yourself with the mobile market there and stuff. Um, I think it could be big in America, too, where handhelds still have some kind of stranglehold. And and if you can make it look like a tablet where you can play Meteor Games on, kids will love that stuff. There is a culture around that. Yeah, but
1: but it does, like, it makes you wonder, like, because it is every single year the mobile like the phone and tablet market gets stronger and stronger and stronger more powerful more powerful and then become much more capable and then like at what point is nintendo competing more with the ipad than they are with the ps4 and the xbox one if they're still staying in that handheld market like does will that market continue to exist i think is the big question and is that market the same market as people who play console games
0: yeah no it's a total question so we might as well move on But it yeah, is yeah. interesting the, the, Another part of the Your
1: Gamer article Is that Nintendo Will say more in September Was the date that they Was the sort of okay. Section they gave So we'll we'll see if that Holds true And maybe have more In early September To talk about with
0: the NX Yeah More to, more to come Yeah Alright Let's talk about Jason Bourne Okay The time
1: has come Alright Spoil-
0: Spoilers from here on out Right yeah Because we gave our Spoiler free Yeah Opinions at the top I was really enjoying This movie until Nikki died Right okay I'm going to start there because I feel like I have to start there. I think there is some interesting stuff up top with this movie from the Jason Bourne side. Right, yeah. Um, Because I like the little glimpses we see of him just totally nihilistic and like defeated and just being a fighter in Greece and just knocking dudes out and getting his money. He's abusing his body. That kind of feels like, yeah, that's probably where Jason Bourne would be ten years later. Right, So I kind of like that. And then Nikki comes back and that's kind of interesting. And I do think the Athens scene is the only scene I would unreservedly say is technically masterful. Right. I think it's really interesting. I love how in that scene we basically get introduced on the the American side to the Alicia Vikander character, Heather Lee, and uh, we see how Heather is sort of using these new kinds of technology that we know exist of tracking and hacking phones and all this stuff, and Jason Bourne is for once not one step ahead. He's like three steps behind. Yeah. So it's a very interesting scene on that level. It's got a huge scale to it, and then... They decide the only way they can get Jason back into the game is to do the thing with the same way they got him back into the game in the second movie. Yeah. And kill his girlfriend. And so there are three major female characters in the trilogy. Two of them have died in the same way to motivate Bourne to get back in the game.
1: And let's back up. It's not only that Nikki dies that gets him back in the game. It is also that he has remembered something else that he forgot That is now like going even back further to right before he entered the program not the moment that he did enter the program and now he needs to get the files and everything to figure out like why did I they were observing me before I was in the program what's all that and that also feels like that is a pretty cheap play and that is specifically like the thread with that plot line is by far the worst part of the movie to be following that shit. Also, awesome. but yeah, that, that's like that where Nikki dies and that happens is kind of like the crossroads for me of that of the what,
0: movie. What I realized there is that, one, they have no new ideas in terms of how to use their characters because Nikki dying is such a it's the laziest possible way to get born back in the game yeah. and it sells out a really good character. Yeah. So that's awful. And also, they saddle her with terrible dialogue while she's on screen. And I felt bad for Julia Stiles, who's a really good actress. Yeah. There's that. And then, as you say, it intersects with you start to realize, oh, Bourne has daddy issues. Oh, great! That's that's what I wanted. And you and you see that that's intersecting, and you realize they didn't. They had no idea what to do as a sequel to Bourne Ultimatum, and so they did. I they did both reheated leftovers and what were those other movies doing about? it? someone was searching for his father? The Amazing Spider-Man had a great idea about this. Let's take inspiration yeah. from that.
1: Yeah, and, and it, for me, it's like it's it's the combination of the father stuff with just them going back to that same plot device that I felt like the the, the born trilogy dealt with which is him trying to dig out his past and ultimatum is him figuring all that shit out and i feel like the character has to be forward looking from this point for i felt like he had to be forward looking from the point of born ultimatum if you're going to bring him back he sure shit needs to be forward looking now if they're going to make another one of these movies because cuz if they if the next one Jason Bourne's like thing is Wait, something the government was doing something weird with my mom before they were doing something weird with my dad. I have to figure that out. If they do something like that, then I'm totally checked out. Like I'm, I've like there's the stuff that this movie does interestingly. Does interestingly is enough for me to be sort of optimistic about a sequel to this. But like, if that's the route they go and they they mine that hole again, that is like unforgivable for me from a storytelling point of view.
0: And there were so many obvious ways for him to be a forward-looking character in this movie. Yeah. Because, again, I like the basic setup where he is... He remembers everything now. He remembers all his assassinations. And he hates himself for it. And that's how you mind his past from this point forward. Is he has guilt. He's trying to figure out who he is now that he's basically lived two or three different lives. Yeah. And the answer is he intersects with the, the Heather Lee character. And she's kind of trying to lead the CIA in a new direction. And he winds up intertwined somehow... That should be the story. Yeah. And everything else is just so messy. I have no clue what they thought thematically they were doing with Jason Bourne in this film. Yeah. Like up to the end where they just bring out the line from the beginning of Supremacy where it's like, Nope, Jason, you do have a choice. And then he goes and chases down Vincent Cassell anyway. Right, And yeah. then he kills him. And I don't really know why he does any of that. And Because the
1: Vincent Cassell character d- d- killed his dad.
0: But, Remember that no, horrible I, plot twist? That's no, why he yeah, did it. it
1: not just, not, just the dad, not just
0: kill his dead. Not just kill his dead. He's tied to everything in Jason Bourne's life. Yeah. It's like he's done everything. It's he's basically the shitty version of Blofeld from Spectre, the Jason, uh, the James Bond right. movie. It's and that's the other thing. Like that's this theme in like the amazing Spider-Man and Spectre in these recent movies where you have long running characters and you decide the only way we can do new stuff with them is to retcon their past to make it just uninteresting and boring and shitty. And
1: just super cliche. Like yeah. I don't need to See a story where Jason Bourne realizes that his dad was assassinated by the CIA dude and now like now he has to go kill him. Like because it was already unnecessary. You didn't like he could have you could have come up with reasons for those two characters to fight that were already present in the plot. You did not need to pile on top of it. Like, that was the biggest eye-roll moment of me for the whole movie. Like, that, the plot was just, like, steadily getting, like, more eye-roll-y in terms of, like, oh, they're getting his dad and all this dad stuff and blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, God. And then it's like, oh, and then this dude we've never fucking seen before apparently was working with Tommy Lee Jones, like, way before Born Identity happened and he killed Jason Bourne's dad. Like, fucking what?
0: I mean, apparently Jason Bourne's dad started Treadstone. Yeah. It's literally the plot of The Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. Where his dad did everything... And then was killed and now he has to figure it out. Yeah. And that is not the movie you should be ripping off for your fucking Bourne sequel. Yeah. And now you shouldn't be ripping it off for anything. It's awful. But, you know, that's especially not something this good. Right. But I'm just baffled by the way they use character throughout this because the only... So Nikki barely counts because she's in 20 minutes. Yeah. So really for the majority of the movie the only returning character is Matt Damon. And he's barely in this movie. I mean, he has almost no lines. And I know we talked about how in the other movies he doesn't talk a lot. He has a lot more dialogue than this. Right. He's, he's really barely a presence, so it's almost all new characters. And other than the Alicia Vikander character, who I think they really sell out in the last five minutes, I'll talk about that. Yeah. But other than that, who they really try to make her her own thing, the Tommy Lee Jones character, the Vincent Cassell character, all these people are characters who were supposed to have been in it all along, we just didn't see them. Yeah. And I hate that kind of storytelling.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's like you said, It's the ba- it's the wrong way to try to make a sequel, is to go back. Like, especially... When, like, you had... Because we talked about when we did our podcast about that trilogy... That it feels like that is, like, one story that it, like... Is done and told by the end of Ultimatum. It's, like, you start at the Born Identity... And when it wraps around to, like, symbolically the same shot... At the end of Born Ultimatum from the beginning of Identity. Like, done. If you're going to make more movies with these characters... Which you obviously and certainly can do... Like it has to be something new and different, and it has to be something forward-looking. It has to be something that pushes the franchise into a like the next step to like the like a modern generation kind of thing. And it just it feels like the Lisa Frankender part of the movie does that, and it feels like weirdly enough, the Jason Bourne part of the movie doesn't.
0: No, and I, and it's so hard to untangle these things sometimes because the actual like forward momentum plot of the movie is. I want to say two It's really like ten things But you can kind of Boil it down to two things Right And it's born trying to Figure out the shit About his father And it's this weird thing With a like Facebook-esque company Called Deep Dream Yeah Which Which boy, is a terrible name no. Just an awful name All the, the good stuff Where they were good At writing technology Ten years ago They're not anymore yeah. They lost that Um, So that is like Something that is going To go online And spy on everyone And so that's another plot And they're kind of related But they're kind of not And Alicia Vikander You pretty much think you know her motivations and then sometimes the movie kind of sells her short, I think. Okay. Um, And then, you know, you get to Las Vegas and at that... By the time he gets to Las Vegas, I had given up. I don't know what Bourne was there for. I don't know what he was trying to accomplish. It seemed like in one sense he was kind of going along with Heather Lee and trying to stop something bad happening so he's being heroic. Right. But really all he does once he gets there is try to figure out his own shit and then it turns out... They kill Tommy Lee Jones, so everything's okay. So the Deep Dream thing was never really a threat, because they killed Tommy Lee Jones. So that... Like, I, I literally did not understand the plot in the last, like, 40 minutes of this movie. It makes no sense. And not just... I mean, I literally understand what happens. Right. It's that I don't know what we're supposed to be getting out of it. That's my biggest problem, is I have no idea what they, as filmmakers, want me to understand from this story.
1: Yeah. Like, like and I, I definitely... Agree with that to a certain... Like, I don't, I don't think I have as much of a problem there as you do with that stuff. But, like, there is... Like, it's, like, there's just moments where, like, when Jason Bourne refuses to kill the Tommy Lee Jones character. And then, what did I, Heather Lee. Yeah, Heather Lee comes in and kills, shoots him. Like, that's a part where, like, I don't quite know why Bourne hesitates there. Like, I don't... Like, it feels like the movie's... Has never like built up that like argument the way that like when he refuses to shoot the guy at the end of supremacy who killed uh Nikki or not Nikki uh Marie like that feels like that is part of what that movie's argument is of like where they're trying to get the born character to sort of redeem himself and and like refuse to be an assassin and so he doesn't shoot the dude at the end of the movie that makes sense here it feels like he doesn't have that character arc at any point it feels like he has no character a, arc he, he is a static character and I don't have a problem and actually I think Jason Bourne should be a static character from now I don't think there's much more to do with him to change him He is a character who is from the past And he's like symbolically resonant I think both like he needs to be symbolically resonant Within the diegesis of the film Because he is this uh, like whistleblower figure He's like this guy who's very important If you are in like the secret shit in the government So he's important in that aspect symbolically And then for us as filmgoers he's important symbolically but as a character he's done. That's why you need the heavenly character to come in and be the new the, the new generation of like not she's not the action star, but she's where like the thematic and character material really comes from and I think that's the right idea. The problem is it feels like they are trying to sort of like do that and then still have their weird born plot at the same time and so both of those things are pulling away from one another.
0: They are and but this is the the Timely Jones stuff really does confuse me because okay. oh you kill him because he's an asshole. Okay, I get that. Sure, yeah. What does it accomplish In any way this Well it,
1: it allows The Heather Lee character to, to rise up higher In the CIA
0: Okay that's for the next movie Doesn't do anything For this movie And, and Well I think, I
1: think It does stuff for The argument of like Of her Like of this new generation Of people that are Simultaneously like They are They feel like They are like This new generation That is like now that Has this new familiarity With technology And understands this world They live in The way that like The Tommy Lee Jones And Jason Bourne generation Don't But at the same time, they are they are still victims of the same structures of power that they think they are trying to sort of like circumvent. I feel like that's the argument that the movie that's the Foucault kind of argument the movie's making to me. Uh, No, it's it's I think it's poorly making it,
0: but it's making it. Sure, yeah, but most movies wouldn't even try to make it. I guess. No, I get that totally. But again, I just I can't get over this with the, the Tommy Lee Jones thing Because okay. we have all this other stuff tied in with it Like, the Deep Dream stuff doesn't need to be a part of the movie It's sure. so superfluous by the time you get there Because they're really implying that they have to do something about this larger issue And whistleblowing is a part of the movie at the beginning And then it gets completely forgotten about Because Jason decides he's not going to leak any of this other stuff Which I don't know why But he decides he's not going to do that And he decides at the end, like... He's really just out for the Tommy Lee Jones character, and they don't do anything to make the other stuff come out clear. Right. And at the end, the uh, the the Riz Ahmed character, who's totally connected, disconnected from everything else, he's the, the head of, of Deep Dream. Yeah, he um he was gonna commit confess, but then he doesn't. So. The status quo hasn't really changed there so it's just like as a action climax I think if you look at the other movies it's very clear what the goal is of the movies yeah. and what is accomplished at the end I don't know what sense of accomplishment for any of this we're going to get and I think you totally could go with the as you say Foucault style argument where the sense of accomplishment is sort of a circular one where it's it's degrees of change yeah and not whole change and that it actually doesn't change that much that's that's not what they're like Building towards though And how they do it Especially when you still End with the giant Fucking car chase Where Jason's motivation Is just pure revenge I guess
1: Yeah it, it does Like I think there's An element of the Jason Bourne character Where he's so nihilistic Throughout the whole movie That I guess They kind of I guess maybe that's why I don't have a big issue with is like i have an issue with like the specifics of the motivations but like i don't have a huge issue with how they're playing out i agree that like the deep dream stuff is very messy but i don't think it's like i think it's just poorly developed And, and it's actually it's like probably my like the for me the worst scene in the whole movie is when tommy lee jones and the deep dream guy are in the cafe and they have that conversation that is just the dialogue in that scene is Unbelievably hacky Like because we talked a lot about in the Born Trilogy Podcast about how good they are With their exposition of being very visual And never telling you shit And that was a scene where it was like The first draft of two characters Talking to each other where like the writer Just had the characters saying literally What they are thinking and like but never Saying what either of these characters would ever say In a conversation like it was completely Insane the dialogue in that scene to me
0: all the stuff surrounding Deep Dream is awful. I Riz Ahmed, who plays that character, is a really good actor. If you've ever seen like Nightcrawler, uh, he's on this show on HBO right now called The Night Of. Great actor. He's awful in this because he's saddled with the worst dialogue in the movie where like, the scene where he also announces Deep Dream and he's like, don't worry, you will be safe. And everyone applauds. It's like no it's one like, has yeah. ever, it's like someone had heard of like a Mark Zuckerberg character or a Steve Jobs presentation but never actually watched they one. They talked to someone who watched The Social Network when it was in the theater. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's, yeah, it is like, yeah, like it does feel like their grasp of the like modern tech culture is thin at best. Like it is like it and it's something where I've, it's one of those things where I feel like there is an idea there of like, well, that is an element of like our culture that has changed significantly and that you can. because it's, it's something that where the, these tech companies have had such a huge presence in our lives and the government obviously wants to and is involved with that. In in a sort of shadowy way In in, in a lot of areas And so I can Like I understand The storytelling impulse I just think As with a lot of stuff In the movie It's just horribly
0: done It's horribly done And when you lay it all On the Tommy Lee Jones character Which ultimately And I get there There are thematic arguments Around this But in the movie That was made And we watched in theaters The whole point is You kill him You fix the fucking problem He's the bad guy That's what's I think the movie Is saying that
1: You you want to kill him Because you think That's going to fix the problem But of course That's not going to fix the problem Maybe that is one of the reasons Why Jason Bourne Doesn't kill him Because he knows That doesn't fucking solve anything Because the people That replace him Are just going to be worse Because they're going to be More effective than he was Because they understand
0: How things work now I get that, but what I'm saying is, one, that's an argument they made better in Born Identity, Born Supremacy, and Born Ultimatum. Sure. They did it in all three of those movies and they did it better. And two, you, if you do that, you can't just have him be sneering one dimensional villain the entire yeah. movie. This is, one, it's a waste to Tommy Lee Jones yeah. because he can play nuance and he's not allowed to here. And if you just, even whatever your thematic point is, if you make him the big villain and all evil seems to emanate from him, and that's how you tonally present it, which I do think is how it's tonally presented in the movie, is he's the big bad you've got to take out. Um, even the Vincent Cassel character, it all comes from him... The point of the Bourne movies has always been It's the system, it's not individuals Sometimes you have individuals who go a little off the rails Like the Brian Cox character right. But the reason why the Bourne ultimatum is the best is there's no antagonist Well there's antagonists but there's no villains You have Noah Vosom who is not a bad guy I don't right. think yeah. But he's a part of the system That's the kind of character they wanted to do here And for me also, like even if they did that right It would feel a little hollow because I already saw them do it
1: Yeah, I, I think there's something where because I think they do well. Like again, like it's something where I you have to have like an asterisk next to everything I say. Of, like they do it clunkily, but they do set up with the Lisa Vikander character that she is trying to rise up the ranks. That that is something she is actively trying to do. Yes. Is why she wants to be assigned to the Jason Bourne case. She's this very go getter kind of character that is trying to like get her presence and her voice in the CIA and is willing to do whatever she needs to do to go do that. Right, and so I think. Well again I think it's clunky I do think that That argument is there I think it would be Much better if The Tommy Lee Jones Character was a lot More subtle But I don't But I think like The argument still Exists and was Reasonably effective For me by the end
0: Okay I don't disagree That the argument's there That's what I'm saying It's there But like I You say that And I'm thinking How much more Interesting would I find All of that If Tommy Lee Jones Was playing a character And not an evil cipher
1: yeah, no, it would be it would be a much better movie if they did that.
0: So let's talk about the Heather Lee character. Okay, she is the best part of this movie. One, Alicia Vikander is just great in this. Yeah, yeah. she gives this she gives a performance that honestly reminds me of Matt Damon in the other movies. Sure. Where yeah. sometimes she's talking, sometimes she's not, but she is always thinking, and through her body language and facial expression, so much is being conveyed. And which is, I don't think Matt Damon is allowed to do here ever in this movie. Yeah. So it's just she's really, really good on that level. But yeah, as you say, as a plot of this woman who is very smart. Understands the way things have changed Is ostensibly ahead of Jason Bourne Until the plot requires her not to be Sometimes. Yeah, it's a
1: very, very end of the movie I was pretty annoyed by.
0: I'm annoyed by that And I hate the whole sequence in London where She's there and she she doesn't Guess that Tommy Lee Jones is just going to fuck her over What's she Right, thinking? yeah. That's, and Tommy Lee Jones' plan is to... We'll talk about the body count in this movie That's Although horrible. maybe
1: she was just relying On Tommy Lee Jones to fuck her over in the first Place.
0: Which I don't like that kind of Plot. Yeah, no. <laughs> anyway, so again, when when the movie allows her to be interesting, she's interesting, and so you're rising up the ranks, and again, I can imagine a really interesting version of this story where it's Jason Bourne kind of comes out for whatever reason, and realizes he's basically... Um, Outmoded at this point Yeah he's He's, a fossil He's a fossil And there's this new way Of doing things And they kind of hint at that At the Athens sequence Where he is so far behind them And behind this Heather Lee character In particular And then maybe At some point Over the course of the movie She is trying to Bring him back in And she gets him To come back in On some level Yeah That's an interesting Actual character change Where he accepts He can Kind of in a James Bond kind of way He can be her blunt instrument And that's his role In the world now Yeah That's But that's not What they ultimately Went with in a clear sense Anyway Yeah
1: yeah, and it's it's something where to go to like the very end, it's something where, like honestly, I think I would, I think the movie would be actually significantly more effective at what it's trying to say if they didn't have the final final twist of like where she like is talking to the one CIA dude like this is just, like okay like she just says all this stuff about like oh we'll bring him in and not we'll kill him and all that shit and then she meets up with Jason Bourne and then she finds the thing in the car that's like oh Jason Bourne knew the whole time it's like it's that final step that's like. No like Jason Bourne Shouldn't be ahead of this character Like even if they never made another sequel It would end like because I think that one That would be a much more interesting direction to leave Open for a sequel I think they could still basically do the Same thing because fucking whatever with that very Like the very last like one minute Of the movie but like Within just the movie itself and ignoring The potential of a sequel I think it's a more Effective argument to leave it open that like Jason Bourne can be subsumed By the system again that he can't he can't escape it. Like, like it is part of, like, how power, the, the systems of power that society operates in works, that you cannot escape it all the way, no matter how far you think you've gone, it is still operating on, like, on you, and you just can't, you can't escape it, you can't ignore it, you are a part of that
0: system, and you always and, will be. And I totally think that would be interesting, but, it, yeah, the, the the ending of the movie totally undermines that, yeah. just completely, because he beats the system and he walks off, and It's so funny that they even botched Just like the Moby needle drop here Because if you think of all the other movies When the Moby song comes in It's either Jason Bourne doing something Insanely cool like at the end of Supremacy Or it's a big character shift moment But here it's just He's going to get a sandwich I guess Like what, what are we supposed to think about How Jason Bourne has changed Or what he has learned about himself Or anything at the end of this movie Other than He did what he did before and he did it again and even though it didn't look like he was smarter than any of these people, he was and now he's just going to walk around Washington D.C. freely because that's a thing apparently.
1: It just feels like that ending exists to have the cool Jason Bourne ending or like what they're trying to go for as the cool Jason Bourne ending and not because that's what the movie is trying. Clumsily as it is, what it is ultimately building up to, which is him being duped in some way like not necessarily being like i don't want the movie to end with him like joining the cia again but like ending the movie with that door being open and him being hesitant about it i think is clearly the right way to end the movie yes. it feels like they basically ended the, like you could end the movie that way you just have to pause the movie one minute before it's over yes. and the movie ends that way
0: oh and it would be significantly stronger yeah. i won't disagree with you on that that the ending killed it. Any enthusiasm I had It's also just clunky Like the way it's edited And everything Where it's It's just kind of Slow and silent And she's in the car With the dude And has the conversation She had like Word for word earlier With Tommy Lee Jones And then She gets out of the car And she goes to talk to Jason And they have this conversation And then she goes back and she gets in her car and she has the thing. We listen to the whole conversation again and th- and that's not even when they do the Moby needle drop. Yeah. Then we go back to Jason and he goes off to get his sandwich and that's when we get it and we end. And it's like, oh, that felt like it was twenty minutes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It's like it's just it's a sequence that needs to be a lot more snappy. It, it just
0: like there's too many parts whole, to it. The whole movie needs to be snappier. This yeah. is this feels significantly. St- Closer in tone To the Bourne Legacy Than to any of the other Three movies I talked a lot last week About how The Bourne Legacy Like the the movies are great Because a lot of it Is non-verbal And they're kind of Parsed down as scripts But then the Bourne Legacy Didn't understand it Because it's like All dialogue all the time It's very confusing Too many layers of plots This is a lot of that There's, There's Even the action Except for the car chase In Vegas Every action sequence Is the same thing In this movie It's Basically a watered down version Of the Waterloo Station sequence In Born Ultimatum Where yeah. it's like Little kind of foot chases Kind of not And people walking around And a lot of people Talking to each other and, But with a lot A significant amount More dialogue And technical dialogue Than there ever was In the other movies And it just At some point it's just, it's just boring I mean we got to The final car chase And I should have been excited For a boring car chase And I was just like Please end I don't, I don't care There's nothing going on That I'm supposed to care about At this point yeah. So And I also thought from a visual standpoint I thought Vegas was a weird choice I don't think it fit with the aesthetic of the series I I think they shot it very well but I mean and also that car chase is to me totally so out of whack where like he's in the SWAT car and he like runs over 30 cars in a row or something and There's a lot of tonal out of whack. Like the amount of bodies the Vincent Cassell character drops makes no sense. Yeah. He just kills. He kills four fucking CIA agents in one scene, and apparently Tommy Lee Jones thought that was a good idea.
1: Yeah, and and also the like the thing that the, like was also another thing that was weird about his character is when you ultimately find out. Oh, like how old is he? Because it, he was like an active agent when he killed. Jason Bourne's dad Like presumably He was an experienced agent At that point Because they wouldn't Like have some novice To pull a job like that But then also I guess he wasn't in Like their super agent Like Treadstone programs Because he was already Like well established As a CIA agent At that point So it's like How old is he And how how is he This effective That's like It feels like They did a good job About feeling consistent Of like Jason Bourne through his, like, rigorous, insane, like, indoctrinated training is far more effective than, like, any normal person. And you need another, like, crazy, indoctrinated agent to be at the level to kind of compete with him. You, like, normal people can't fight Jason Bourne. He's going to kick their fucking ass.
0: Right, and, you know, when it started and they, they, it's, it's clearly, it's Vincent Cassell is the assassin in this movie, I thought. Okay, that's kind of interesting because in the other Paul Greengrass movies... Um, and it's different in the board identity because you have like Clive Owen, but in the other yeah. Paul Green movies, the assassins really aren't characters. Yeah, they're bodies, they're agents, and there's a thematic point being made there. You know, you yeah, have they're, they're weapons of yeah. the government. You have Carl Urban in the second movie, but he's not really being used for his acting chops so much as you know, sort of his just his look and his skill as kind of yeah. an, you know, just as a body in this movie. Um, and so I was like, okay, they they have Vincent Cassell he's playing an older character. This is a good actor. Clearly, they're going to do something where they try to make the assassin into a character. I want to see where they go with this, and I realized by the end, there's a reason you don't do that yeah. in this, these movies because it doesn't. Even if you do a good job at it, it's kind of tough to do that when you have yeah. born as your main character.
1: And I think you could do it, but like you can't do it by giving him like I thought with like another sort of bit of like what just felt like non-born writing was his like initial motivation, which was after Bourne did his whole whistleblowing thing that he got captured in by like the chinese or someone and was tortured for like 2 or 3 years or something like that just doesn't like that feels like that is literally a plot to like a 24 season that is not does not feel like a born thing you know like it's just it's too comic booky of a character motivation to felt yes and then also that it feels like that, that character motivation is like nothing because then you realize, oh, the, because that's when you think, oh, this is just like a this is a leftover Blackbriar agent, but he's not a leftover Blackbriar agent. He is some fucking old assassin dude from somehow got the, the
0: Blackbriar, even though everything we knew about those programs was they wouldn't yeah. hire a twenty year old assassin. Although
1: I don't think they they didn't I don't think any dialogue necessarily confirmed that he was actually in the Blackbriar program. He was just okay. like he was in an operation that was part of the documents that that Jason Boren like exposed and leaked. That's like so. It's not necessarily he's is a part of the Blackbriar program, but he was part of some of the black ops or something of the CIA. Because I feel like if they was supposed to be a Blackbriar agent, I think they would have probably made that a little bit more explicit. I don't know. Yeah, um, I don't know.
0: It's a it's a very frustrating movie in a lot of ways. It's make. usually frustrating, and it gets more frustrating the more it goes along because I just kept realizing there's nothing. So I think here and how it's presented to me at least There's interesting things I can kind of grasp at In the movie that doesn't The version of this movie that doesn't exist But sadly it's not up there on the screen Most of the time The Alicia F. Kander character if it weren't for her I, I would have blown my brains out at some point Because there's just it's it's. Yeah, I mean, the me. movie it's...
1: would have had nothing if, it, if that character Was not in there like that character is The linchpin of everything that this movie does right
0: like I do not understand why Matt Damon came back for this. I do not understand what script he read where he thought that will challenge me as an actor. He doesn't need the money. That's not yeah. it. He doesn't need the exposure. He's f- got, fucking got an Oscar nomination, everything for The Martian last year. He's on a he's on a career high at this point. You know, maybe he just it's,
1: wanted an excuse to get fucking ripped. Maybe that was just, that's, just, I, just sitting I, around I, and was like, I just want to do like I see like all these fucking. St- Superhero comic book guys And they get all these movies Where then they just Get these insane Personal trainers And get fucking ripped In like three months I want to do that Let's just make another porn movie
0: And I get it He gets to work with Paul Greengrass Go around the world All of that It's fun to get the band Back together But I just I, I don't know what Paul Greengrass Grass Got out of this As a director um, He shouldn't be writing His own movies I don't know if Did he write Captain Phillips I'd have to look that up But yeah. uh, if any That's a much better Written movie if he did I'll so I'll look it up right now Okay I, I just don't know And you know, I have no interest in them doing another one of these. One, I don't want Paul Greengrass wasting more of his career on what is, I think, at best, uh, kind of a dead end. Um, I, I don't need to see these characters again. There's are things that I think you could turn the ship around and do interesting things with, but it's not such a home-run slam dunk to me that I feel like I I desperately need another one. I'm, I'm perfectly happy for this to be it and I just kind of forget about it and the trilogy is the trilogy I I think this was not something that ever really should have had a sequel and it did and oh well
1: yeah like just as the
0: point of order
1: uh, Captain Phillips was screenplay by Billy Ray so.
0: okay yeah this might be the first movie of his that he Paul Greengrass wrote he wrote it with the editor Christopher Rouse and I just I don't think they're writers <laughs> yeah yeah
1: yeah, I mean, they definitely that comes across in the dialogue. And, and,
0: and I know yeah. the movie was very rushed. I mean, it basically went from announcement to release in under a year. I mean, it yeah. it really came together probably too fast. And that's how this stuff goes sometimes. See Suicide Squad in theaters this weekend. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just I'm disappointed.
1: Yeah, I, I am definitely disappointed in this movie. I think I am more optimistic for the idea of a sequel to this one than you are. I think there is... Well, there's like certainly a chance that it could be just as bad or worse than this, as this movie was, I think there's also like there is something to be said about like it is hard to bring characters back that have been sidelined for years and years and years and just sort of like find their place in something new and like generally that is a failed experiment. But it is much easier once you have that first movie out... To then use that as like... We don't have to try to figure out... Like we don't have to figure out what this character has been doing in the interim. We don't need to find a reason to bring this character back in. Like this character is back into play. Like I think they can make a good sequel. I don't know if they will. I don't know if they will make a sequel at all. And if they do I don't know if they'll make a good one.
0: But I think it's definitely open. I think they should get someone else to write the screenplay but... I get that. It's just at this point I... I like Matt Damon so much and I like Paul Greengrass so much, I'd like to see them do other things. Sure. And if they do them together or whatever, I just, you know, artists have a finite amount of time on this earth. I don't know if I need them wasting time. And maybe maybe it's not wasting time. Yeah, like I'm but. saying,
1: like I think I want I want Matt Damon and Paul Greengrass to make good movies and I think a sequel to this movie could be a good movie. Like, I don't think... It, like, there's enough good ideas at its core, as bad as it is as exposing it, that I think with a lot of the sort of narrative work of... Bringing the character out out of the way, you could make a much better sequel to this movie that would be very interesting. You could make a great sequel to this movie if you if they, if they had it in them, and they might maybe, have it in them
0: maybe maybe I just don't know i mean let, let's talk about the trend of sequels underperforming though okay because I, I think no matter what this is a case of studios needing franchises, even when that franchise has no clear reason to exist in this day and age right or or it's it's done or something, and it's just Every sequel this summer, almost every sequel this summer, with the exception of something like Finding Dory, which is an unmitigated success, um, the box office motor has even calculated this, the average decline from the previous film in the franchise is 14.4%, and you could literally predict Bourne got, I think it was like 13.5, like that's, and then you can just predict that because that's what the previous one got, and you know, people are saying this was impressive for Jason Bourne this weekend, 60 million, um, Born Ultimatum did 70 10 years ago right. I, I don't think that's good I, I, I'm i sorry that's, that's a 10 million dollar drop Over 10 years Which adjusted for inflation That's big That is not the powerhouse It once was right. And that is, has been true For Star Trek Beyond It was true for um, Ghostbusters It was true for uh, I've missed a lot of these sequels probably But there's just a lot of them Even The some, Snow White movie? That doesn't count um, there's, I mean that's just a flop A lot of yeah, these aren't yeah. flops Like people try Sexist people online are trying to make it seem like the Ghostbusters movie was a flop It's not It's the highest grosser any of the people involved with that movie have ever had It's just I think people were thinking it could be much bigger than it was right. I think it did fine But there could have been bigger expectations I mean there's clearly franchise fatigue out there Even Captain America Civil War Which I don't think anyone is disappointed by the performance of that movie. It's a billion dollar plus grosser. It's huge. They didn't lose a cent on it. They made a lot of money. It's a success. Did lower than Avengers Age of Ultron. It was positioned kind of as an Avengers sequel. So it was bigger than Captain America 2. But Marvel wanted that to be Avengers 3. And so just even things like that. There's clearly franchise fatigue in the water. And, you know, some of these sequels have been necessary and fun. And, like, I'm glad we get our Star Trek Beyond and things like that. I'm glad we got our new Ghostbusters. But I really wonder, like, does Hollywood just, you know, close their ears and go, "Nah, nah, 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 I can't hear you, and just keep doing the same thing? Or do they learn something from this summer, which has been pretty disappointing at the box office if you think sequels should grow, which... A, which but, if you don't think sequels should
1: grow, why are you making sequels? There's the question. That's, that, you, that is not a good way to run a business is yeah. have declining returns year after year. Yes yeah. Yeah it, it's, it's something where it, you know it's, it'll be interesting to see like how this goes going forward. If it is like really that like people are just getting tired of sequels and getting tired of like this sort of the heavy franchisation of Hollywood movies, which has been that way for a long fucking time, that like one that is not a good environment for people to start trying to make their cinematic shared universes no nope. like the, the king Kongs like universal like that shit that they're trying to start up the dc shit they're trying to start up like all that stuff is like that's a that is a bad direction to go in it'll be interesting to see if like the star wars movies are affected by this in any
0: way i think some things are safe i think marvel is safe at the moment in part because there's enough diversification that it doesn't necessarily feel to a general audience like sequels all the time, yeah. even if they technically are and it's all shared. I think Star Wars is safe for the moment, um, just because I think they're doing they're trying to mix it up enough every year. There's enough. But hunger the fact for that they there. are
1: putting a Star Wars movie out every year, yeah, I wonder no, if that's what they're going to that's what's going to do it for them.
0: No, but I think in a couple of years. I don't think like this right, year yeah. or next year. I think I think I think where we might see that is is so we've got Rogue One this year. That I think people are excited for. We've got yeah. episode eight next year. I think that'll be a big hit because people loved episode seven. Yeah. The next one after that is the Han Solo movie. That's the one where I would look like, is that where it falls off? Because people don't either want that or need that, even if it's yeah. good, which I think it could be because I like the talent behind it. But that's where I would maybe see after we've done three in three years, in our fourth in our fourth year, maybe that's where it falls off. Um, you know... So anyway, I'm getting off track. but I think So there's some things that I think are grandfathered in and are okay because I think they're reading the mood of audiences well enough. But then I think there's a lot of other stuff where I I don't see a world in which DC pulls this around and, and gets it to Marvel-level yeah. grosses and stuff. I think if they want to do this, they're going to have to have smaller budgets and smaller movies and just accept that. And it's going to be a different game. And kind of
1: thing. hire someone that's not Zack Snyder to make the movies. Yes,
0: they're going to have to accept that. I think a lot of other studios are going to have to figure out new things. I think... You don't make Jason Bourne 2, I think you figure out a new character because once upon a time the Bourne identity was this sort of weird little action movie that could and just became bigger and bigger and bigger and people forget about how you build franchises. Yeah. You know, Like Fast and Furious movies, I think those are grandfathered in for now but people are forgetting the, the thing Fast and Furious taught people which is that you can take something that just seems like this little weird action movie and over time if you nurture it enough it becomes something everyone on earth loves and makes billions of dollars. Yeah, you
1: just put the rock in it. But maybe, that's, maybe that's what the solution to all this is Every movie just has to have
0: the rock in it somewhere And you know it's, it's weird to me That Disney is chasing stuff And Pixar is chasing stuff Like the number of sequels they're doing When their success stories are in their original movies Yeah, Like they're going to do Frozen 2 Because obviously they're going to do Frozen 2 But they did Frozen and that was huge And they did Wreck-It Ralph and that was huge They did Big Hero 6 and that was huge And this year they did Zootopia And that grossed almost as much as Frozen To me the lesson there is don't do sequels Do things that excite your audiences and just kind of risk that. Yeah. And But even then, they are devoting time to original things. So they've got their head in the right... Disney knows what they're doing. I don't know if any other studio in the in the town knows it.
1: Yeah, and I think it's like it's also like... Going back to the Marvel point, I think it also is that you have... What Marvel manages to do is that it has each of its successful heroes. And it does like every other... Every three years puts out a sequel for one of their movies. But then also has new movies coming out that get people... Like especially people like me Very excited to see like The Doctor Strange movie Or the Black Panther movie Or the Captain Marvel movie Like And and it's stuff where it's like You know, we're on like Thor 3 and stuff like that coming up next, but then also Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And so it's like you have the middle sequel, they're going to be trilogies. You have the first sequel to the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. It's like, oh, cool, we get to revisit those characters for the first time while we have the Thor characters that we have seen for a while and we get to visit them. And maybe some people are kind of tired of that. But then at the same time, then we have Doctor Strange characters that are all new for the audience. Like that keeps the excitement up and keeps the brand interesting and vibrant you know
0: yeah and i i think they're trying something similar with star wars i think they know what they're doing with animation where it's a good mix of originals with sequels for particular things you know so i think and, and you know disney's got all their remakes but it feels like they've gotten to a point where some of those are genuinely so interesting like the Jungle Book, that it doesn't right. feel like a cash grab. That movie did not feel like that once you were in the theater seeing it, right. and it had and it succeeded from word of mouth. It was a good yeah, yeah. movie. I mean, and that's the basic thing is you have to make a good movie. It's okay to make a sequel if you have a clear reason to make that sequel, but I think yeah. a lot of people the clear reasons aren't always there. I think you know, and I wonder. I think there are things from this summer that we're going to look back at differently. I think they could do a Ghostbusters two. And maybe a lot of that baggage is taken off of it, and the next one could be just a massive hit. I totally think that could happen, and we could look back, and it's it's not a disappointment, and I don't think it is now, but it could be, you know, that perception could go away entirely. Um, But, you know, like, and there's just, there's other weird things in how the business business is changing. I don't think anyone in America is even aware that a new Ice Age movie just opened. But it did. There was a... I
1: had completely forgotten, but I saw there was a poster at the movie theater where yes. I, I
0: went to go see Jason Bourne. It completely bombed in the United States. 20 million opening weekend already a huge hit because that series is way more popular abroad than it is at home and it's animated so you can easily just cast actors from all over the world right. and, and they're animals so you know it's, it doesn't really matter nationality and that sort of thing and that just I don't even know they might not even bother releasing the next Ice Age here there's a you know blockbuster coming out later this year in China called The Great Wall yeah that's made by the American company legendary or at least co-funded by them directed by Zhang Yefucking Mu who is one of the biggest directors in Chinese history yeah um, so Starring Matt Damon And then a bunch of other uh, Chinese actors Like Andy Lau And you know uh, house And that's sort of A half and half Where it's in English But it's really For Chinese audiences It's not coming out here Until February Yeah How soon until they Just make a movie In Chinese With a Chinese audience And that's who They're aiming for Because frankly That's where the dollars are
1: then maybe fucking Americans Will learn how to read subtitles And I yes. can watch my fucking Like weird Japanese movies I want to uh, see I, in theaters God I mean, it.
0: I mean Warcraft Bombed as hard as a movie Possibly could here Yeah It made huge money in China If I were them I would Here's what yeah. I would do Make Warcraft 2 In Chinese with a Chinese cast That is Fuck a yeah. slam dunk That sounds way more interesting Of a movie yes. to be already but you, I mean, because I mean,
1: world like that part of that is that Warcraft is also a brand that has massive appeal yes. over there. So like that, it's not just like some weird th- phenomenon. It's like no, Blizzard is probably counting on we have no, a yeah. massive worldwide base of fans. They
0: they were not counting on that though, like how sure, just sure, how yeah. big it was in China and that it would just fall on its face in America. But that's what's... I mean. Uh, Audiences around the world Are getting to be Much more important Than America Yeah like
1: Like a lot of movies Don't like premiere First in America Anymore like they are Overseas for a couple I just
0: I do think The current business model Is very untenable Moving forward Because it is this thing Where you have either Little micro movies Or giant ass blockbusters That have to make A billion dollars To make a profit And that means You cannot rely on America Because there's not A billion dollars Worth of profit there Unless your name is The Star Wars The Force Awakens Yeah Not the Star Wars Star Wars The Force Awakens And other than that, you know, you have to rely on a global audience and but if, if America just dries up in the process and that's where you make your movies, it, it becomes more and more untenable. So yeah. that's all I'm saying and I the, think it's, like the,
1: the situation with like the way people watch movies is changing, like where like you know, the the home theater stuff is like and then being able to watch movies on Netflix and the quality of Blu-ray and all of that and the relative lack of quality of movie theaters at this point, I think, yes. also contributes to people not wanting to go to movie
0: theaters. No, I mean, this is the most... We've talked about this so many times. I know I'm beating a dead horse. But it baffles me that movie theaters simultaneously bitch and moan about lower attendance. And at the same time, make it the shittiest presentation possible. Yeah, I There are two theaters left in town I go to. And otherwise, I just... I don't care. I'm not going to go to the movies. It'll look better on my fucking TV. Yeah. Just... It's end of the day. That's what it is. So it's it's confusing to me that that's and I know I'm a more technically inclined person with this, and you the same way. Yeah. But you don't have to be to realize you left the fucking lights on in the back of the theater or something <laughs> crazy like that. I don't know. Or
1: you've never turned on the 3D and my 3D movie and now everything's just fucked. Or like the the yeah. volume is just insanely low and even I can't even understand what people are saying anymore.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious. I just think. We're in for some rough times with Hollywood with some very clear bright spots, but also some things that are just we're going to suffer through even if we like it. I don't know. It's weird.
1: Yeah, it feels like it is a moment for a lot of that kind of kind of like old forms of media. There's a, a sea change needs to happen. Like, you see, like we talked about earlier, we talked about BoJack Horseman and Stranger Things on Netflix, and, which and t- are way more interesting shows than what most of the networks are trying to make. And they also are hugely popular
0: just through sheer quality and word of mouth. And TV has completely made that sea change. Yeah. Like, there's the five broadcast networks. Well, four. CW has helped to make that sea change, too. They're the most acclaimed broadcast network at this point, which is hilarious to me. But the other four, you know, CBS, NBC, Fox, ABC, they're, they're completely irrelevant. Relevant. They don't... Yeah. There's a Critics Top Ten list that'll have more than like one or two of their shows. And so TV, that sea change is done. Yeah,
1: CBS is trying to use their new Star Trek show to push their streaming service, for God's sake.
0: Yeah, which and, and CBS is weirdly forward-looking in that way. Yeah. So, so that sea change is here. I wonder how movies respond. Or if... I, I really think if you study movie history, I think we're near an inflection point where things are just going to shift again. Yeah, that's like, what
1: seems like what it has to be.
0: Yeah. So, we'll see.
1: Yeah. Interesting um, times ahead, you know... Things are things are changing, things are moving, you know. Yes. Movies are changing, T V shows are changing, the NX is imminent, you know. Nothing is safe anymore. We're all Sp- in danger.
0: Speaking of movies. Okay. Sean, the other day I, I got an email, I get a, a newsletter from Right Stuff, which is the anime site. Yeah, I'm a familiar, Cause I, cause yes. I bought stuff from there. And I, was, I just kind of was, I usually just go through and delete a bunch of emails every morning, like spam I get. Yeah, yeah. And I just was going through and I see things very fast. And the Right Stuff one came up and it had a little picture in the corner of Persona 3, the movie number four. Yes. And I was like, oh shit, wait, when does that come out? And I looked it up and I'm like, it's out today. And so I'm like, oh, I have to order this shit. I knew it was coming out in August but I kept delaying pre-ordering it because last time I pre-ordered from Right Stuff with Persona 3 the Movie number 3, yes. they didn't ship it until like 2 weeks after it came out. And I was very frustrated by that. So I just I'm like I'll just wait until it's out and I did and they've already shipped it, which so I guess pre-ordering is a really bad idea there. But anyway, yeah. so uh we've got Persona 3 the Movie number 4, the last one. It's coming in. I've officially spent $320 on this series. Jesus. Um between the four movies. Yeah. I think it's it's kind of worth it. I don't. It's
1: worth it to me. Um, and that's all that matters. It's it's worth it to me. Yeah. Because I just get to watch the movies from you and then wait till they weirdly pop up on Netflix all of a sudden. Some of them. <laughs>
0: yeah. One of them. One of them. So uh, uh, that'll come soon. I don't know if it'll be here in time for the next podcast. But one of the next two podcasts, we're gonna be talking the Last Persona Three movie. Yeah. You so, excited? So I'm. I'm excited. I'm scared. I'm trembling. I'm sad. I'm. All, I'm, I'm everything. I'm excited we get to do this one more time Or watch one of these together and talk about it It's become a weirdly fun like annual or biannual tradition
1: Yep and then on the eve of Persona 5 Coming out like it feels appropriate To finally get the last Persona 3 movie in And
0: close that chapter in our past Before we look forward to our bright red future So excited yeah, cool things coming up. We've got—I'll uh, talk about Suicide Squad at least. Maybe you will. Uh, yeah, we'll see about that. Kind no, of. <sighs> no Man's Sky is coming out. Lots uh, of yeah. other games. Um, they've got the Persona Three movie. Uh, it's kind of go time. Yeah, this
1: this is basically the last episode before shit really hits the fan, and it's it's all gears ahead. So you know, let's savor this brief moment of quiet. Let's get our tissues ready for watching the last Persona 3 movie and getting to the end of that motherfucker. And then let's just play video games till we die. I'm excited.